Leo Sharp was 80, broke, alone, and in debt when he started transporting cocaine for the Sinaloa cartel. But then, DEA agent Jeff Moore showed up and proved nobody runs forever. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode six of Game of Crimes. Yes, I am the true crime fighter in this duo. My name is Morgan Wright, and I'm here literally <laughs> with my partner in crime. Steve Murphy, who you can call me Murph, but Mr. Morgan, you have to call me El Señor Jefe Principal. <laughs> you almost forgot what to call yourself. <laughs> I am El Jefe. That's what you tell yourself to at the house until your wife comes in and you go, si, senora, si, senora. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm afraid of that woman. <laughs> well, hey, guys, we had a great episode. I'll, I'll tell you, and Murph, I'll tell you, um, the feedback we got from people, one of the best things I saw was on one of the reviews. The people really appreciated the fact that they understood what it takes to do this job. And that story about you and Kevin and what you guys faced that day in Hialeah, uh, I, I mean, I'm still talking about it right now. It gives me goosebumps. And that mm -hmm. picture Kevin provided, uh, I mean, what a great episode. You know what, uh, Morgan, I was listening to it the other day, and about halfway through, I had to stop. And my wife sitting there, and, and you know, she's very close to Kevin as well. And she's like, "What are you doing? You got stuff to do?" And I said, "No, I'm just, I'm getting amped, I'm getting amped up here. I'm getting really antsy listening to this again." So it took me another day before I could go back and finish listening to it again. But like we said, that's the first time Kevin and I have gone through that entire shooting and just kind of dissected it, and I learned things that I didn't know, and as well as him. So and it's funny how you know you remember things. We don't remember things the same way. Right. And that gets into the issue with witness statements sometimes when we used to take those things. But anyway, that was a great, awesome episode. We got another one coming up for you. But before we get into that, just a little bit of housekeeping. Folks, please keep going to Apple uh, and the iTunes. Give us five stars. Get the reviews going. It helps us rise up the chart. It helps us get visibility because we're finding out that, hey, we're getting a lot more advertisers here. So you guys are going to be hearing a lot more ads. That's thanks to you. That's what makes this podcast possible. So, And also head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got some things. We, are, we will launch Patreon August 1st. Now, I said end of July. Murph and I had a great meeting with the folks from Patreon. Mm -hmm. One of the things we learned is that if we launch on August 1st as opposed to the end of July, you don't get double billed right away before we can do content. So we're going to launch August 1st. We've got some great content coming out. I'm excited about that. You can still go to PayPal. Use Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever makes your life easier, right, Murph? It's all about making life easier. Yeah, if you could figure out how to mute Morgan during these interviews also, that'd make my life a lot easier. Yeah, but not as interesting, though, So, because I'm, I'm an interesting guy. <laughs> yeah, you, well, okay. I'm going to leave it. Stock I'm not tie, okay, don't go there yet. Not yet. And by the way, folks, quick disclaimer, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. It's important that we get both sides of the story, but one of the things we do is we take the story seriously, but... Not ourselves. Absolutely right. So, hey, Murph, before we get into Game of Crimes, guess what time it is? I bet it's time for... Small, Small Town, Town Police, Police Blotter. Blotter. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> All, right. All right, Murph, I got something good for you today, too. You're, you're not going to have it so easy like last week, okay? Oh, Lord, here we go. But we'll save that one for the last one. Okay, guess what? What? This happened in uh, someplace called Ashland. It's the lower duck pond 
Lithia Park in Ashland. Police responded to a report of two dogs running loose and attacking ducks at about 11.20 a.m. Sunday. Okay, sounds okay. Mm -hmm. The officer cited a resident for the loose dogs. The duck refused medical treatment and left the area, according to police. <laughs> well, hey, the duck should have kept his ass up in the upper duck, duck pond, not the lower duck pond. And you know, why the, you, you know why the duck refused medical treatment, Murph? <laughs> You're going to tell me. Because he had aflac. Aflac. Oh, oh. <laughs> See, now the listeners wish they had a mute button so they could, they'll never get that out of their mind now. All right, well, hey, this, this, one, this one is a virtual crime wave coming up on this next one. <laughs> and, uh, six men, their faces covered with red bandanas. I, I have no idea where this is from, uh, but it's got to be a small town. Six men, their faces covered with red bandanas, got out of a Cherokee carrying a knife, baseball bat, billy club, and a rolling pin, said Davis, 20 years old. Davis said, I knew when I saw the rolling pin that something bad was going to go down. <laughs> Well, they were just going to the January 6th rally up at the uh, Capitol building here in Washington, D.C. That's what yeah, they were doing. He must have had his ass beat by his mother with a rolling pin, because I'm, I'm a little more worried about a billy club and a baseball bat, you know, but and, how, how and is it that a rolling pin makes it serious? Yeah, and that, you know what, that, that ass whooping you're talking about, it's not a bad thing for moms to be whipping some butts, because <laughs> we've got a whole different group of, a uh, whole different generation now than what we were when we grew up. <laughs> Well, hey, speaking of a different place and a different time, Fargo, eh? Fargo, North Dakota. Guess what? what? A Fargo man was arrested for clearing snow with a flamethrower. Now, you're going, okay, that sounds novel. Here's his, here's his response. Fox stated he was simply fed up with battling the elements and that he did not possess the willpower necessary to move four billion tons of white bullshit. <laughs> Dude, maybe you should think about moving from North Dakota. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that cold weather. I, God bless you people who live up there because we're, uh, we're moving to Florida. I'm done with cold weather. Yeah, well, just make sure your house doesn't fall down. Well, literally, we're putting it on the market here, I think, next week. So we yeah. are heading to Florida. All right. Well, hey, we'll all have a party at Murph's house before he leaves. <laughs> I'll send the address out later. Let me sell it first. <laughs> Once we got a contract, we'll party. Uh, hey, this one comes from us from Maplewood, Minnesota Police Department. You just got to love that name, Maplewood, Minnesota Police Department. Just sounds nice, doesn't it? So this is a Facebook post, actually, but I thought it was hilarious. So they have this picture of these little individually wrapped one-gram baggies of marijuana, little plastic bags. And it says, and they were pretty novel about it. They go, if you accidentally donated 111 grams of marijuana along with your clothing earlier to a local store, please come to the PD so we can reunite, reunite you. We know you spent a lot of time dividing them into these perfectly measured baggies and must be missing them. <laughs> well, that's a real entrepreneur there. He must have so much money he, can, he doesn't even need to worry about his stash. Donated it. He just donated it. Hey, you All know, right. I, I got to tell you, when I was a, a cop back in the 70s in Bluefield, um, you know, we had these nice planters around City Hall. And every few months, you had to go out and check the planters because people would come by and put some weed seeds in there. <laughs> You'd have a little marijuana plant growing outside the police department. Hey, and they would have called that they would have called that entrapment, a sting operation. You're trying to bust <laughs> us right here. If you're dumb enough to pick weed in front of the police station, you deserve to go to jail. Oh, anyway. Funny, funny. All right. Now, this final one. What year was it? Okay. All right, Steve. Okay. Here it is, and you have to tell me what year this was. I'll give you the date here in a second. So it was December, or actually it was January, no, I'm sorry, November 18th, November 18th. What year was it? So here's the story. 
The headline is Traffic Tie-Up Brings Search of Automobiles, Whiskey is Discovered. And I love the way they led off with this. The moral, when you carry contraband articles, especially red whiskey, drive carefully. So a man, uh, basically what he did was he crashed. And it said if he hadn't bumped into an automobile at Railroad and Jennings Avenue Wednesday afternoon, and if he hadn't stopped to ball out, B-A-W-L, ball out the two young women in the offending automobile, his automobile would not have been searched and three small medicine bottles of the precious liquid found. So you can tell that they, they're kind of going, oh, so I've kind of given you a hint. This That's has prohibition. to be during prohibition. That's yeah. right. Yeah. All right. So anyway, what year was it? Was it uh, was it November 18th of 1920, 1925, or 1935? 1935. And, and you know why you're wrong? Trick right. question. Prohibition uh, ended in 1933. Oh, you dog. You dog. <laughs> so 25. Nope, 1920. You're wrong two out of three. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> now, DEA, if I give you enough chances, you'll get the right answer eventually. Hey, but, DEA, drunk every afternoon. I mean, uh, <laughs> Drug Enforcement Administration. <laughs> All right, well, hey we got some good stuff. We want to get right into the episode because we've got it time. This one is going to be great, Murph. Um, uh, you actually got this guy. So just give us the quick skinny on Jeff Moore, and then we're going to hop right into this episode. Very good. Very quickly. Jeff Moore is a uh, actually still a DEA agent. He's still on the job. Um, I'm not going to tell you what part of the country he's in right now, but because uh, he's still making cases. But uh, I watched this movie, The Mule. Everybody's watched that movie with Clint Eastwood. If it's Clint Eastwood, it's got to be good, right? Yep. So uh, I'm a big Clint fan and, and watched that movie, and I had no idea that was based on a, a true story until you and I started researching potential interviews for this show. And, and one of our original ideas was to critique movies. So we were looking at different cop movies, and uh, when I got to The Mule, I found that was based on a real story. So through further research, we found Jeff Moore. He's the case agent. This one required us to go to DEA headquarters to get approvals because Jeff still is on the job. And as you're going to hear in our interview today, he's very soft-spoken. He's extremely intelligent, probably the uh, one of the last people you'd ever expect to be working undercover buying dope off of uh, street corners and so forth. Uh, we're going to post some pictures of him back in the day when he was doing his undercover buys. <laughs> and I believe he told us uh, that he finally gave that up because he got tired of having guns shoved up his nose or something like that. So Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're going to get into that. But by the way, we introduced something. Steve just teased it. We were going to rate movies. We are introducing a new patented system. you got to listen to the end for this. All right. So now that we've teased them, Steve, let's get going and let me ask you the big question. Are you ready to play the biggest game of all, the game of crimes? Hey, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on, because here we go. All right, everybody. Welcome to the next installment of Game of Crimes, Evil is Coming. No, this is not Game of Thrones. This is Game of Crimes, because it is a game, right? I mean, this is, we're going to talk about one of the biggest games being played out there, and that's the cartels. That's the stuff that they're doing. But to do this, we actually have to have somebody who knows something about investigating the cartels, bringing bad guys down. And since Murph doesn't know anything, we thought we'd bring on Jeff Moore. So, Jeff, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jeff, we're glad to have you on the show today, buddy. Yeah, I appreciate um, it. Appreciate it. 
This is a brother DEA agent, so if you want to kick on Kansas troopers or anything like that, that's all fair game <laughs> in today's podcast, all right? So. Yeah, well, you can't spell Kansas, Murph, so you, know, you need a dictionary. All right, K-S, what else do Yeah. Go ahead. No, hey, Jeff, let's just get this kind of started because a lot of things we like to do on these podcasts is, first of all, get some background, right? So as we were talking in the pre-call, you and I actually have a little bit of a connection other than we're both better looking than Murphy, um, <laughs> which is, you know, obvious. But it's really about um, – so tell us about where you ended up going to school and then your uh, your association with Kansas. What was – you know, you get out of school, where would you go to school at? And then what did you do? So this is the fun part. People don't know, but Kansas is responsible for a lot of good stuff, right, Jeff? It is. It is. It's um, it, my story is kind of interesting because I, I really uh, never intended to get into law enforcement. And uh, I ended up going to a small trade school in Pittsburgh, Kansas, uh, Pittsburgh State University. And I majored in printing and uh, graphic arts. So when I, after I graduated, I ended up uh, coming up to Kansas City and working for different ad agencies. And I did a lot of work for uh, different companies designing food packaging and stuff like that. It was just the, the exact opposite of what law enforcement is. And I, I had I had done that for about four or five years. and Well, before you go any farther, too many people get Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri confused, right? So when you say Kansas City, there you are with that Missouri snobbery again, forgetting that there's a Kansas City, Kansas involved here, right? No, it's the same thing, isn't it? Well, the, the state line... Um, divides Kansas City, Kansas from Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, it's the Missouri River, yeah. Oh, right. well, you know right. what? Hey, so we had the same thing where I was a police officer, uniform police officer. We had Bluefield, West Virginia. We had Bluefield, Virginia. So I'm sure it's very comparable to, to what's the name of that place? St. what? St. Louis? Yeah, St. Kansas Louis. City? <laughs> where is it? We're, we're on the opposite side of the state, but yeah, Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, okay, we'll get serious now. Sorry. Um so anyways, I, <clears throat> I'm, I'm doing this for four or five years, and um, it just, I got to the point where there wasn't uh, a lot of job satisfaction, and it was kind of an industry that was on the decline, because a lot of um, ad agencies were um, doing things differently, and a lot of people were able to uh, become graphic designers without having to go to, going to college, and it just, the industry was changing, and I was just going through a lot of just burnout in what I was doing. And I just remember uh, one day I was looking through the Kansas City Star and I was looking for another job and I was just, I was kind of ready to move on and ended up seeing a small article for uh, a police officer in the back of the newspaper. And uh, just it, it, at the time, I just, I said, why not? You know, it sounds interesting. And um, for, for, for that, they were going to pay for your um six months of your academy training and there was really nothing to lose it was paid for and so i just i came home and uh announced to the relatives and family that i was gonna end up being a police officer <laughs> what you mean ad design and drawing food labels that wasn't a fulfilling career for you yeah it, it was for a while and i just i don't know it was just very um it was monotonous and i was dealing with a lot of uh, customers that were just really picky about the projects and it was just it, it, it was a lot of stress involved and it, it just it, so for me, you think it, of getting out of that and into police work was going to be less stressful 
Oh, people might be a quickie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You've learned, haven't you, right? Yeah, it's it's it was definitely an eye opener um, when I switched careers, and, I, and I, I'm glad I did it because this has uh, been the greatest thing I've ever been a part of, and I've I've loved I've loved every minute of it. Um, so, so what caught your eye about the ad? Why did you think I want to be a cop now? I mean, was it had you been around law enforcement or military before, or was it just that this is so far different from what I was doing? I wanted to try it. You, you know, I. <laughs> Growing up, I had never really kind of seen, you know, a lot of different things other than how how I grew up in kind of just kind of a sheltered suburban environment. And I had never really seen um, a lot of the things that police officers have to deal with every day. And I had had a few buddies that were cops and um, just talking to them, it was just kind of an eye opener about some of the things they do. And it just seemed like, it, to me, it seemed like there was a uh, a greater purpose in, in trying to do that type of career. And, um, I was just at the point in my life, I was just going through a lot of burnout, just, you know, doing what I was doing and I was just ready for something totally different. And, um, so I just decided to pull the trigger on going through the Kansas City, Missouri police department or the Academy. Tell us about the process, about applying. How long did it take you, you know, when you got in? Uh, you know, just a little bit of background on yeah, that. Kansas City, Missouri is a pretty big police department. Um, there is a lot of turnover, though. There's a lot of guys that um, go through it, and they just, it's not what they want to do. And and so they have to continuously um, run a lot of academy classes through there to, to get the numbers. And um, so I spent... I spent six months going through the academy, and then once you once you finish your academy, you end up in the field on a, a probation period where you're teamed up with another officer. They're they're, they're not going to let they're not going to put you in a police car by yourself. You're you're going to be with another guy uh, for six months, and they're gonna they're gonna run you through every type of uh, call that they can put you through before you have to before you're on your own. You know, they're going to try to get you exposed to as many different types of scenarios and um, stressful calls that they can during this period. So what's one of the calls you had during that time that made you question your judgment about, do I really want to become a cop? Was there anything during that six months where you went, I should rethink this? Or was it more like, oh, hell yeah, this is what I want to do? Um, it, it was like, uh, it was just nothing I'd ever seen before. I, I ended up working out of East Precinct, which was at the time probably the most um, busy and probably one of the most dangerous parts of Kansas City, Missouri. It was a, it was a pretty bad neighborhood. And I remember um, my second week on, I had to respond to a double homicide. And it was it was two drug dealers that had been shot and killed uh, in an alley behind an uh, apartment complex. And I, I had never even seen a dead body before. And just seeing that situation was just uh, an eye-opener that, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that's just horrendous, you know, that people have to deal with. Well, did your, did your uh, field training officer, did he ever set you up uh, in any maybe funny situation to see what your reaction would be? Yeah. It, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a loaded question. Here, isn't it? <laughs> they they want to acclimate you to um, dealing with confrontations with people because a lot of your um, dealings are with belligerent people that are drunk or combative. And, and so... 
you know, coming out of the academy, you're not really used to that type of confrontation. You know, you're, you're used to kind of trying to de-escalate things with people and, you know, being professionally talked to people. And then, you know, when you get out on the street, they're, your training officer is trying to get you um, sent to any call where there's just the most belligerent person possible that you have to deal with. And, you know, uh-huh. if there's some drunk guy that's, you know, pissed his pants and he's laying in the street, then you're the one that has to handle that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you you got to trial by fire. You got to yeah. get your hands dirty, it, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> but I am not searching the guy. That's all I got to tell you. I did that one time. Never again. <laughs> I know it feels like your hands never get clean after you do that one Duh. time. <laughs> yeah. So you did. Uh, so you, now, how long did you spend total with the department? I I, I did four years uh, in patrol, and um, that was that was the most fun I've ever had. It was just it was just a really exciting time. Um, the, uh, my fifth year, I applied for a unit called the Street Narcotics Undercover Unit. And I ended up making it into that unit, and that was... Why'd you apply? What what made you decide uh, you want to... You, you were having fun on the road, you said. What what made you say, I want to go work dope? Uh, we were doing a lot of... Uh, it, I, I know the policing kind of... It kind of wobbles between reactive and proactive types of policing, depending on different communities. And in Kansas City, they were really pushing for uh, proactive enforcement where you're out there looking for guys that are selling drugs on the corner and stuff like that. And so, you know, it was just kind of a progression where we were doing a lot of enforcement towards street level drugs and, um, you know, arresting guys on corners that were selling bags and stuff like that. And and that was the funnest part of it for me. I mean, the jump out and grab. Yeah. Yeah. You know, grabbing guys and, um, you know, catching the, you know, the really bad guys that are selling, you know, drugs and, carrying guns and stuff like that. So you look like you're a fast guy. Me, I wasn't that fast. I would just get on the radio and I'd say, hey, look, somebody up there, get this guy. But you you, you must have loved a couple of those foot chases. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, a lot of foot chases, a lot of vehicle pursuits, um, things of that nature. And, you know, luckily you're, you know, you always have a few cars that are a few blocks away. And, you know, as long as you know your, the biggest thing is you know your geography. You kind of know which direction you're going at all times. And that was one of the first things they taught you in. Um, the academies, you always need to know where you're at because a lot of times you have to jump out of the car and you're on your mic and you're running down the street. And if you don't, if you're kind of daydreaming in your car, you're not going to know where you're at. So you always have to know uh, what corner you're at, which direction you're you're traveling. How many how many uh, sworn officers did you have there in Kansas City? I think it was I think it was fourteen hundred something like that. It, it was it was a good size uh, police department and, and they had a lot of different. Um, units that you could get into if you wanted to, you know, get into the canine unit. There's a helicopter unit. Um, but uh, I ended up making it into the street narcotics unit, which was, um, it, it was one of the most exciting things I've ever done. So what was, years were you in Kansas City, Missouri, PD? Um, I, I got on in 99 and uh, went to the DEA in 2004. 
99. You're a youngster. My first oh, yeah. my first job at Academy was 1982. <laughs> Steve's was what, 1902 or something like that? 75, brother, 75. <laughs> oh, my God, 99. Oh, geez, you're dating this conversation. Thanks a lot, Jeff. You, not, you look young, but now you really are young. I, 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 turned, I turned 50 here pretty soon, so I, I don't feel too young. <laughs> the only reason he agreed to be on our show here is because he's respecting his elders. <laughs> and we appreciate it, by the way. So, Absolutely. Hey, so, uh, couple quick questions about Kansas City before we move on. Um, number one, did you ever uh, run into any of the Royals? Because I know the Royals uh, obviously played their Ewing Kaufman Stadium. A lot of them were, was it Leewood? A lot of them were over in Leewood or uh, one of the burbs yeah, of Kansas City? Um, I, I never, every once in a while we would do security for games, but I, I've never um, really run into uh, any players. Um, but that is that is a big part of Kansas City because it's definitely oh, yeah. a baseball town. I remember uh, as a youth in Kansas, we would go up to the old stadium. In fact, the Muehlbach Hotel, which I don't know if it exists anymore there, the Yankees used to come in. And we would, I actually got Thurman Munson's autograph. Oh, and wow. I lost the autograph book, and then he dies in that plane crash in 79. And that thing, I mean, it just, I went looking for it. Hey, one other quick question. Um, a lot of people don't realize, too, but there's a lot of organized crime in Kansas City as well. People think it's Chicago and stuff, but there was a lot of OC in KC. Yeah. Uh, before my time, uh, Kansas City was a really big foothold for um, the mafia. And for some reason, it, I don't have a lot of knowledge in this area. I just know that there was a lot of management of the mafia based in Kansas City. A lot of the guys that were the bigger bosses um, lived there. Because it was a nice place to live, or were there was there legalized gambling? Or? It, it, I think it's just kind of a centralized point, and it's um, it's off the radar from a lot of people. Yeah, um, and it's it, it is a nice place to live, but I'm not really sure why some of these bigger guys ended up in Kansas City. Well, I remember talking to an FBI agent who worked out of the field office up there, and they were working an organized crime case, and. Of course, they find this guy in the back of his trunk been shot seven times or six times, and they're rounding up the usual suspects. And the one guy, I just remember telling him, he said, look, anybody found sleeping in the back of their car ought to be shot six times. And he says, how did you know it was six times? Because that's all it'll hold. You know, it's just like these guys, you know. But a lot of people don't realize the history of that. I mean, there's a, there's a lot that went on there. So, But speaking of history, you were about to, I mean, you spent that one year on the street. So what made you decide that you want to go now to the next level? You know, you wanted to make Kansas City a part of your history and move on to the next level. How did that come about? Um, this unit we were in, um, this was this was such a crazy time for me. Um, we were actually buying crack out of crack houses with just $20 bills. And a lot of times we would grab a prostitute off the street that we didn't even know. And you would drive around and the prostitute would point out a drug house for you. And um, you had this little Nokia uh, undercover phone that you had in your pocket. And you would turn that on to your backup team and let them know what house you're inside of. And you would end up going in this house with your with this inform either an informant or an unwitting. And unwitting is a person that doesn't know that you're a law enforcement officer. And you would go into these houses and um, they were just horrific places. And you would be inside there. Um, pretending to be a junkie, you know, I had a long beard and long hair and I had like an old work shirt and, um, it was just crazy. You know, you were just inside these places trying to buy dope as quick as you could and then, and then get out of there. Weren't you concerned about your safety, about getting ripped off with quick hits like this? I mean, there's no time yeah. to do recon, no time to really know who's inside the houses. It, it, I, 
it, most people can't do it a year because it, 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 the amount of stress is just incredible. And I, I, after nine months, I was ready to go. And it was just, um, it, it was an eye opener, but it just made me realize uh, the impact of drugs because you would, you would just see how decimated these families were. I mean, a lot of times you were buying drugs inside of an apartment or a house and you'd be sitting on a dirty couch and there'd be little kids sitting next to you. And oh, it was just, heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, it was, it was horrible. But when I went through that, I just kind of realized that it, it was something I wanted to uh, work my career towards just working drugs. Well, Jeff, you're a, you're a pretty soft spoken guy. Did did you come across like that, or did you have a, a different persona you dropped into when you're going in a crack house? Because I think I might try to rob you. Yeah, because we just got through talking to a guy named Lou Velozzi, and he's Italian, and we were all over the place, and here you are, quiet little guy from Kansas yeah, City, Missouri. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's they teach you a lot of different things, and it's you're you're basically a salesperson. You're trying to you're trying to sell yourself as a junkie, and and they teach you little trips, uh, tick tri <laughs> tricks and tips on getting into the house and you know, things that you can say that'll uh, reduce people's suspicion that you are a cop. But, you know, you always, there's always a, a risk because whenever you're in these places, a lot of times they, they ask you to To, to take drugs. a hit or do yeah. something, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's the biggest problem is you're, you're in there and then all of a sudden when someone starts passing around the crack pipe and, you know, they hand it to you and you're like, well, let's, how about, how about you, Jeff? Let's see you take a hit. <laughs> it's kind of hard so, to affect the rest after you're high, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it does wonders for your career too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but I didn't. But I didn't inhale, though. That's what That's that right. was your defense. Yeah. You know, and that that brings up a question here because uh, you know we get this question all over the world: is, oh, now tell the truth, you really tried the drugs, didn't you? I mean, if you work undercover, you had to try the drugs. Hell no, we didn't try the drugs. <laughs> That's television crap. Jeez. Yeah, I, I, uh, I remember uh, one time I was in a car with. Uh, a, um, a prostitute that I had, I had picked up and we were trying to get to a dope house and she, and she was smoking a crack pipe in the car oh. with me. And she said, Hey, let me give you a charge. And I said, I, I, I didn't even know what that was. And I turned to her and she, she blew all the crack smoke into my face. Oh! And I just kind of remembered at that moment thinking in my head, I just, I hope I don't become a crackhead from this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or the other thought you have is I hope I don't have a pee test tomorrow. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I just hope this doesn't affect me. Well, in some you know, and the way. sneaky little the sneaky little guys. The other thing they do too. You guys are familiar with this, right? Raya radio immunoassay of hair. You can actually take the hair down to the root. Oh, I learned okay. the reason I learned this because I when I was a trooper, I went through the academy. Broke my nose, got broken real bad. Well, the one of the ways they cauterized it was with hospital grade cocaine, the liquid blue cocaine. Oh, so wow. it does a really good job of making the blood vessel stop. Because I was just hate to say it, I was spurting blood. I took an elbow to the nose and it moved it into left field. Um, um, but when I, I looked at applying for some federal jobs, and actually I had talking to a DEA guy, and they said, one thing is, have you ever used drugs? I said, well, define used drugs, and that's how we got into that. And he told right. that's how I learned about Raya and some of the stuff they look at, because I had to disclose on that that I if you if you tested me, right. there's but here's the explanation for it, right? So I mean it's but I mean to your point though, it's like 
that's a serious concern because now somebody might say, hey, you took a charge from her. You took a hit. You know, you're just as bad as the people you're trying to mm-hmm. arrest. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And obviously you lied about your cocaine usage because DEA didn't pick you up, did they? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, oh sorry. Uh, we're going to move this, forward here. Okay. We'll move on to another subject. Before you learned how to spell DEA, but when's the, fir- when's the first time DEA crossed your mind? When, when did you decide, because you talked about this going on, when did you decide, I want to go this route? Uh, I, I, was, I was halfway, th- I was about four months into this undercover unit that I was working in, and um, some of the guys in that unit had actually made it to the DEA um, before Were you me. part of a task force? Were there DEA guys on your task force or anything, or just no, it was, KCMO PD? It was just KCMO, and KCMO at the time they had two different drug units. They had um, a, a drug unit that was a little bit larger cases, and they were working with the DEA. And our unit was basically uh, closing down just nuisance houses. The, the whole purpose was to close down drug houses. More street-level enforcement, yeah, tactical it was, it kind was of stuff, yeah. It's street-level. You know, people would call in tips, like, there's a, there's a house on our street. Um, can you guys get it shut down? And then, yeah. You know, you'd either get an informant in there or go in there yourself to make a buy. Um, so so tell us about the process of applying. So you're about four months in. Um, yeah. Uh, how's uh, that go? At four months in, um, and then I start, you know, looking into the DEA because it, that was something I had thought about too. And um, I found out the uh, requirements were, were pretty stringent because I'm not, I'm not an athletic guy by any means, but um, they had a pretty, a pretty rigorous uh, physical entry exam that you had to go through to get in. Um, I remember you had to run um, two miles and then do a series of different um, exercises this is one of the parts of the test. There was other parts too. There was a, a psychological exam and a written exam and some other things. So I ended up uh, applying. I had made it through all the different uh, processes and the tests, and then they gave me an academy start date, which was January. And the, the thing that was difficult for me is um, you, I had to do a lot of running to prepare, prepare for the academy. So every day after I finished um my work at the police tomorrow, I would stop at a high school gymnasium on the way home and run two miles around the track. And I, and I ended up doing that for a year just just to be able to be in enough shape to, to start the academy. <laughs> oh, yeah, because you, you got to be ready to run those tank trails at Quantico, right? Yeah, because once, once you get to Quantico, it's you have to be in shape. I mean, it's just as soon as you get off the bus, you're it's like boot camp. Mm-hmm. But, A little um, bit. Yeah, because I think a lot of people don't realize. I mean, they think DEA, you guys just put on jeans and shirts and you go out and you make cases. But I mean, I I know from interviewing Stephen Javier for some other things we're doing, but I mean, really, it's like you got to be the full package. You got to be able to run. You got to be able to good shape. You got to be able to shoot. I mean, the classwork. I mean, tell us about how intense the academy was compared to your six month academy that you did with KCMO. Uh, You know, the biggest surprise to me was the amount of firearms training we did was just unbelievable the, the amount of actual rounds that we were um, putting down range i mean it was just that was the one of the biggest parts of the training is you had to shoot at a certain level and um it, it was kind of it was kind of sad because there was uh there was guys that if, if you didn't pass the course they they got rid of you that day 
when you took your final firearms exam, it was one thing they wouldn't compromise on is you had to shoot, um, I think it was 75%, and if you couldn't do it, you were gone. Um, but, it, I mean, there was it, there was a lot of different things. There was, uh, and of course, you had to study uh, federal law and all the title statutes. You had to know those and a lot of the different um, statutes that you would charge people under. And, and, the, and the biggest thing, too, is, is a policeman, your report writing isn't as important as when you're doing this. Um, and so there was a lot more emphasis on your report writing and writing affidavits because when you get into federal court, your your reports are really, um, and your affidavits are really scrutinized by a lot of people, defense yeah. attorneys and judges. And I mean, they have no tolerance for mistakes or, or things like that when, you, when you're writing these affidavits. You know, at, at, uh, during my career with DEA, I was a firearms instructor at one point for quite a number of years, and every year I'd have to go to Quantico for three weeks and, and act as a firearms instructor to maintain your your certification as a yeah. DEA firearms instructor. And they told you up there, every person that goes through the academy fires a minimum of 10,000 rounds while you're going through the academy. So that's how serious they are about the weapons. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal to them. I mean, it's... I mean, I'm glad they do it, but it, it, they do everything you can to to keep you safe when you when you get to the street. Well, so what was a typical day for you like at the academy? You know, what time did you start? What time? What kind of you know on a, the activities that go on, and then uh, what time did you finally call it a night? You you were you were in a you're in a dorm situation. You had a roommate, and your the rooms were actually pretty nice. You had you had two desks in your room, and um, there was a a every room had a bathroom and. You would get up. Well, that's good to hear. Cause, you know, <laughs> we had to go to the Johnny house outside and run through. <laughs> and running water, too. Did you have electricity? Yeah. Um, the beds weren't the most comfortable. but um, So hey, you, were, you were up on your, on your PT days. You were up at 6. And there was, we started in January, so it was, it was pretty cold. You lined up. You got on the bus in the morning. The bus took you out to the PT. Uh, you started doing ground tactics, that type of stuff. Um, and then you got into uh, some other things. You got into the actual PT part of it where you're running and doing calisthenics. Um, the same day, you may end up um, going to the range. I mean, just there was a schedule every day, and it was always a mixture of different things where you had classroom, PT, range. And it just, it varied from day to day, but you usually went from anywhere from six to six thirty in the morning to about five or six in the afternoon. And then, and, and then a went, lot of studying in the evening and stuff yeah, too, right? It just, you, you had a series of exams. I think there was three or four throughout the academy and um, you had to, there was, you had to maintain a certain percentage. And if you failed a certain amount of tests, you were, you were gone. So, you know, a lot of guys, you know, they weren't as, as studious as they should have been or they weren't great at taking tests. So it was just you kind of encourage your buddies to maybe on the weekend sit down and try to study so they, they wouldn't get kicked out of the academy. <laughs> yeah, they stress, they really, really stress uh, the teamwork concept, right? So yeah, you're looking you, out for each other. Yeah, you knew we had a great group of guys and you, and you knew if somebody had a weak point that, we all needed to work together to get this guy through, you know, and, and that's something 
luckily we did, you know, if a guy had a problem, we'd approach him and say, Hey, let's work together with you and let's, let's help you on the, on this problem you're having. So, yeah. So at this time, what was your, were you married at this point? Were you still single? What was your situation? No, I, no, I was uh, married and, um, I actually had a baby, uh, at the end of the Academy, just a couple weeks before I graduated. Oh, wow. So that it, must've been tough too, <laughs> while you were at the Academy, you got a pregnant wife, you know, this is your first kid. I take it. It was actually my second. And the thing that's, that's stressful is when you when you quit your job to go into the DEA, you're just, you're in kind of that limbo zone where, you know, you have to make it through this because if I, if I, if I don't make it through the academy, what am I going to do? I have, a, I have a brand new baby on the way. If I lose my job here, I don't have health insurance. So you're just... It, it was, it was, you stressful. were motivated. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I have to make it through this place. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. So you end up making it through the Academy, but uh, as I've learned from talking to you DEA folks, mm-hmm. where you go is a surprise. How did you find out about your first post? That's an interesting process. They, they put you... <laughs> <laughs> that's a tactful way of putting it. Yeah, it's, this is not a pretty part of DEA. They put you in a room with your classmates and they put all the cities up on a, on a dry erase board and they tell you, Hey, there's three spots in Chicago. There's two spots, um, in this city. And they, and they, they show you a list of what's available and they say, Hey, work it out amongst yourselves. And they leave the room. And, um, really, I didn't even know this. It, 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 this is how it was done when I was, there. I'm sure I'm, ho- I'm hoping it's done differently now, but, it it ranges from everybody being cordial to our group where we had guys that had to be pulled apart from having fist fights and it was just you sure this wasn't a psychology experiment being run by some Harvard yeah. MBAs or oh, something? No. And, and instructors are sitting there just watching you guys watching you guys go at it. And um I for Before me, you say where you went, tell us where you wanted to go. Tell if you'd had your druthers, where would you have druther gone? I, I, you get to put down your three top positions. I put um, Chicago, Los Angeles, and I. It may have been Boston, and you, you turn them in, and um, a couple of weeks later, you're in class, and the instructor stands in front of the room. He says, "I'm going to call your name. You're going to stand up, and I'm going to." Um, read to you where you're going. And I remember standing up and the instructor said, Jeff, you're, you're going to Detroit. <laughs> and, um, okay. That's close to what? <laughs> Canada. <laughs> and for some reason, the only thing I could think of was, um, I don't know it's silly, but I, I, I thought of those, the old Robocop movie. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Cause it was filmed in Detroit and, and uh, and I knew Eminem was from Detroit. It, it, that's, that's the whole thing I knew about Michigan, and I'd never been to Michigan. And I remember calling my wife that night saying, uh, how do you feel about Michigan? Uh, <laughs> and, and she was okay with it. She was, Honey, she was I got like, good news and bad news. <laughs> the bad news is we're going to Michigan. The bad news is it's where. <laughs> oh, geez. But it's, um, it, this is... I actually love Michigan, and it's been the most exciting city to work in. I mean, I just I have no complaints. It's that's been, it. That's it. That's outstanding to hear. Yeah, yeah I absolutely. I've like... had the best time. 
you know, and I think now what I'm hearing is that uh, when you get hired on to DEA before you go to the academy, you know where you're going to be stationed. Yeah, yeah, I think they changed it where you know before you before you start. Yeah, yeah, because we had, you know, we had a couple guys that quit when they found out where they were going, and and here the government has already invested these tens of thousands of dollars, or oh yeah, or tens of one hundred dollars. I'm not sure which for our training. Yeah, we had two guys. Well, they just, offered to pay you in yeah. kilos, Steve, but you turned them down. <laughs> well, I didn't know what a kilo was. That's a metric <laughs> measurement. I'm in the United States. What the heck? Well, let's talk about that. So you get out in Detroit's your first post. So um, tell us about some of the types of cases you were working in Detroit. For example, it's funny, Steve was talking, and Steve, you tell the story better than I do, but the difference between um, where you were in your first big cocaine case, you didn't realize there's that much cocaine in the world. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> So, Jeff, tell us about some of the cases you originally got involved with. What are you working up in Detroit at this time? My very, my very big case, which changed my life, I think. Um, it, uh, um, there was a guy that got hit in Louisiana with two kilos of coke, and he ended up f- flipping right away. And uh, he said, hey, my brother's a pilot, and he's flying coke from Texas to Detroit uh, every two weeks. And um, he goes, here's the tail number. This is the only thing I can give you. And I remember I was brand new. I was on the job about a month. Um, and my, my supervisor comes up to me and goes, Jeff, here's a tip. Uh, here's the tail number of an airplane. Um, you want to run with it? If you want to run with it, it's yours. And so I grabbed another guy who had been on maybe two months longer than I was. And I said, hey, can you work this with me? He's like, yeah, let's work it. So we ended up finding out this this Cessna airplane was flying to the, not the big airport in Detroit, but the inner city, smaller um, Detroit city airport. And we went out to the, the air traffic controller. We talked to one of the, the guys in the tower and I said, hey, here's the tail number of this plane. It flies in every two weeks. Is there any way you could call me if you see this plane come in? And I remember he took the piece of paper and he taped it to the window of the actual tower. Like as you're looking out the window, you could see our little piece of paper with this number written on it. And uh, it was it was a, it was 10:30 at night. We were working late. A partner and I were getting ready to leave, and the, the air traffic controller called me, and he said, "You've got five minutes to get here. That plane is landing right now." And my partner and I jumped in a car. We were doing about 110 on 94 to get down to the airport. This plane lands. It's a it's a double prop Cessna. It's like a, it's a bigger Cessna than the smaller ones. It's actually a nicer plane. The pilot gets off. He's wearing a silk shirt. It literally looks like a scene from from Miami Vice. And he's got two big briefcases. And we ended up just consent uh, approaching him. Um, He's resistant to letting us into his bags. And we end up running a dog in the bags. But he had 15 kilos of coke in these two bags. Mm. What nationality was he? He was just, he was a white guy. He was, um, he was just running uh, every two weeks running 15 to 20 kilos between Texas and, and Detroit. And I just, I had never even seen a kilo before. And it, and like, I literally thought we won the drug war. Like I thought it was, it was over. <laughs> I'm sorry. My work here is done. We I, can go uh, now. I was yeah. like, Hey guys, uh, we've, we've shut it down for Detroit. You know, it's over. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you about that. So this pilot, when you, when you ran him, did he have a criminal history? Yeah. He had no criminal history whatsoever. Yeah. None. What was his background? What what type of work had he had done before? Um, he was 
he he ran a business where they um, remove dents from vehicles. Like if there's a hailstorm somewhere, he would fly to that city and his company would like go to a car dealership and remove all the hail dents out of cars. And But he'd always been a pilot his whole life. That was his hobby. And then he had just gotten in with the wrong people. And it's crazy. I, he was telling me um, the courier cost per kilo and it's it's been pretty consistent in Detroit. It's usually about a thousand dollars per kilo um, per trip. But he would he would get that plus the reimbursement of you know the airtime of his airplane and and fuel and all that. But just the amount of money of being a courier for um, coke and heroin is just incredible. So did he ever did he ever flip? Oh yeah, yeah, he flipped. We ended up doing uh, what's just called a controlled delivery, where you try to continue the delivery of that Coke to other people so that you can find out where it goes or arrest the, the intended recipient for it. And we ended up indicting, I think 15 guys. They were, they were all Detroit guys that would, that would get the cocaine. Where was he flying out of with the cocaine? Where'd he pick it up at? Uh, he, it was a little town near Dallas. And, um, I don't remember the name of the town, but it, it was just delivered to him. Um, you know, in a parking lot of a, a store somewhere, and then he would transport it to his plane. And I, I didn't know this, but um, I, a lot of times you don't have to, if, the, if there's certain conditions and you have so many hours as a pilot, you don't have to fly, um, you don't have to file very detailed flight, flight plans. And so you're really only visible during this flight when you key in at different areas and your radio's picked up by a tower. No one really knows where you're at, you know, if you're flying um, in, in this way. So it's it was an easy way to get to Detroit without any detection. And so when, when he would land in Detroit, what was his next step? What was he supposed to do with those two suitcases? Um, every time he would land, he would rent a car from the airport, and he would drive it downtown. And, and the guys in Detroit had rented a um, just a townhouse room and. You know, there was four or five guys in there just sitting in there. Each one would take, you know, five, ten kilos or whatever their cut was. And then we just ended up knocking the door and coming in and scooping up the guys. Is that when he would get paid his his transportation fee? He he would wait for a couple of days, and then uh, the money would end up going back with him, and he would carry okay. that cash back down to Texas. How did you originally get onto this guy? Was it an informant? Was it some other? Uh, look, and obviously you're still on duty. So, you know, you're still active, so we're not, we don't want to give away state secrets. Yeah. But how did you originally get onto this guy? No, this, the pilot was from his, um, his his actual brother turned him over. His brother was arrested in uh, a bus station in, in Louisiana with two kilos. Oh, his, so his brother flipped yeah, on his, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, other sorry, brother. Yeah, yeah, his, yeah. His, bro his brother just gets hit in a bus station, and then he tells a. Uh, uh, Louisiana agents, hey, I, ne I need a break. Uh, my brother is is flying all this coke to Detroit. Yeah, and he had actually, and, and, and later he had actually forgiven his brother, which was the crazy thing, you know. Wow. <laughs> so, did you ever trace back the origin of the coke? Which cartel? Who was running that uh, coke into Detroit? Uh, Detroit, for the majority of time I've been here, has been uh, Sinaloa based. And I know at this point, uh, Jalisco New Generation Cartel is it taking more of the customers out of Detroit, but there's still a big Sinaloa presence here. But 
when I got here, in, when I got to Detroit in 04, it was primarily Sinaloa guys. And that was a pretty established route and a market for them. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because um, Steve and I were discussing this beforehand and then with you at the pre-call is just, let's let's lay the groundwork. Let's let's make sure people understand Sinaloa, who it is, where they operate, you know, what they've been doing because, you know, obviously, Steve, you know, with you, we, when we're talking Colombia, we're talking about the different cartels, the Cali cartel, uh, Medellin. Um, these, the, but these are Mexican cartels. They used to be, were they just originally weed and marijuana uh, and then progressed into Coke? Or how did, like with Sinaloa, give us some background uh, it, on Sinaloa. It, marijuana has always been um, it, the biggest cash-making product for, for the cartel. Um, it's, it's changed over the years because obviously uh, Michigan's legalizing marijuana. And a lot of people don't want the Mexican marijuana because it's the THC levels are lower and it's not as fresh as uh, some of the marijuana that comes out of Michigan or out of Canada. Um, when just from talking with our, our informants about the way Chapo kind of ran things and when a lot of stuff was crossing the border, they had um, guys called Plaza bosses that were controlling the gateways into the United States. And I think there might've been like, 10 of them, and each one was responsible for a corridor that controlled an entry point into the U.S. for these drug loads. And, you know, you had to pay a lot of gratuities and bribes to get, you know, your shipment through these different corridors to different cities. And and I I know when we ended up talking to the informant that helps us with the the Leo Sharp case, um, those loads had to go through uh, Chapo himself. He he had to say, I will prove this amount of drugs going to Michigan um, or to, de- to Detroit. Because the way they explained it to me, and they said anything over 100 kilos really needs um, the bigger bosses in Mexico to approve that and, um, and make that happen. You mentioned Chapo. Can you explain for our listeners who that is? Right. He was... Um, the leader of the Sinaloa cartel for many years. Joaquin then, Guzman Loera, right? Correct, correct. Uh, eventually extradited to the U.S. and, and tried in New York and, and um, convicted. But um, he was, I guess, uh, credited as the largest, um, at the time, the largest Mexico um, drug cartel leader. Uh, very, very, very ruthless and um, very business-oriented. Probably still is to this time, don't you think? Yeah, he he just he, he ran the organization like a business where there was just a, um, a good structure to it. There was distribution and 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 different parts of it that, that made it so successful. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of accountability through um, violence, where you know guys were kept in line from you know keeping things moving in the way they were supposed to. So talk about these corridors. When you say they're responsible for these corridors, how was dope getting into the United States through these corridors? What are some of the different ways? The, uh, there's, there's different methods of getting drugs across the border. Um, you know, you, the most unsophisticated, of course, are people that um, mule it across in backpacks. They're, they're literally just trying to run across the border or across a river. Um, your, your most... Uh, significant couriers or, or trucks. Um, and, and the reason you need vehicle traffic is just the, the demand is so great in these cities that you have to get 
hundreds of kilos across a day to be able to supply these different chains of distribution. So um, a lot of a lot of semis are are making it across, and it's just for them it's a shotgun approach. You know, if they if they send ten vehicles across, they they always know that you know one or two will get hit. But it's just it's just a numbers game for them where you have to get so many across. Were you around? Were you on the job when uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement was approved? I, I uh, remember NAFTA. how that changed a lot of things. Yeah. It's, so that's the question. How did it change it for you guys in Detroit? Uh, we. It's rare when we get. We're our city is considered a consumer city where we were an endpoint for drugs where drugs arrive and they're consumed. Uh, in contrast, Chicago is a distribution city and a source city where, you know, 500 kilos will make it from Tucson to Chicago from Chicago. Um, maybe Pennsylvania will get a hundred and maybe Detroit will get a hundred. And, but we're, we're kind of the end point where once drugs get to Detroit, that's where they stop and, and they're consumed. And then, Obviously, they're paid for out of Detroit, and the money goes back south. Gotcha. And we're just we're kind of the last the last stop on the route. So, at any one time, how much coke is coming into Detroit? You know, at the height of the at the before, before you yourself, uh, Jeff Moore took off those fifteen kilos and stopped drug trafficking <laughs> in Detroit as we know it. Uh, I, I've talked to old timers, and I'm I'm always curious about numbers. Um, the most kilos of coke ever found in Michigan in Detroit was three hundred. And the record for, um, this is an interesting story, I, I'll go off on just for a second, the, the most heroin ever seized in Michigan was 100 kilos. It was a woman that had, wow. it was a woman that had two suitcases, uh, flew into Detroit Metro, there was 50 kilos in each suitcase. She was arrested, uh, ended up for her initial appearance in um, district court. She was released on unsecured bond and disappeared and was never heard from again. With a hundred kilos of coke, you let somebody out on a—I mean, no, of heroin. Yeah, heroin. Yeah. I mean, you let somebody out on an unsecured bond. Yep, absolutely. And then she was—they never heard from someone again. <laughs> well, not to mention a woman carrying two suitcases, each with fifty keys. That's a, what, one hundred ten pounds each. Yeah. She must have been a stout lady if she's carrying those two suitcases. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow! I know if I go over seventy pounds, United charges me extra money. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get the seventy pound suitcase up on the weight scale, so I guarantee it'll be less. So, what was the what was the value of that hundred uh, kilos of heroin? Uh, heroin back then it was really expensive. It was seventy thousand a kilo. And this is Mexican heroin, right? Yeah, and and now with the mixture of uh, fentanyl, it's actually getting it's getting a lot cheaper. I mean, you can get <laughs> fifty to a sixty thousand uh, dollar. Uh, kilo with fentanyl in it. So, and how much are the couriers getting paid? Is it still the same about a thousand per kilo, or do do they up the the money when the price of the kilo goes up? If you're just your state of the, you're just a normal courier in your minivan, and you agree to put ten bricks in your in your in your van, you're, you're going to get a thousand dollars per kilo. If you're um, a bigger type courier, then you're obviously going to get more per kilo. And it, it's it's interesting too. We've We've learned that um, there's different types of couriers. If, if there's a courier that, that hauls just drugs alone, they're kind of a lower-level person in the organization. And if there's a courier that hauls money or drug proceeds back back to the origin, they're actually uh, higher up in the organization or they're, they're more trusted. 
because uh, money's just a a greater commodity for these guys. They just they don't want to trust it to just anybody. Well, it's easier to replace a kilo of coke than it is a hundred thousand, you know, dollars yeah, in cash. These, these guys will they'll forgive some loss of drugs, you know, to some point, but they they really they really um, toe the line when it comes to money. They they come unglued if a money shipment gets lost. So when there's a money seizure, tell the listeners what the one thing that the the driver wants in return for the cash you're seizing from him. <laughs> yeah, we we've talked to some couriers, especially truck drivers, and um, immediately if if you're a courier and you lose your load from law enforcement, you are required uh, by the cartel or whoever you're working for to provide a police report within a week. You you have to provide that. You have to provide an actual physical police report showing those drugs or money was taken from you. And a lot of times if you don't produce it, it's, it's punishment by death. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a really big deal. And just, you know, just to put this in perspective, I don't know if you were around Jeff when uh, Southeast Asian and Southwest Asian heroin, you know, those were the two primary distributors. This is before the Colombians started producing heroin down in, in South America. And, uh, the Mexicans, I'm not sure if they were producing any heroin at that time, but a price back when it was Asian heroin could be two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars for one kilo. Right. Oh. That, so you talk to the guys uh, like there's retired agent Pete Charette, who was my boss at one time. He was he was intricately involved. He was one of the main undercovers in the French Connection, which has been a movie made about oh, it. Wow. And so then the, you know you all of a sudden you got the uh, the Colombians come along and they've got their distribution routes set up with cocaine and they decide to give it a shot with heroin, and they had some some issues there in the initial uh, stages where they were, couldn't quite get the purity levels up to the ninety percent plus level. So they brought in Lebanese chemists and you know what? We were seeing uh, those first kilos of heroin, Colombian heroin coming to the United States. We were seeing them above 95%. So where the Asians were charging 250000 per kilo, the Colombians charged 50000 So that's what decimated the Asian heroin market. Now I understand it's come back now some, but not like it used to be. But and why did I bring that up? I don't know. It just sounds like something we're going to talk about right now. Because Steve hasn't had his afternoon nap in medications. That's why. I did get my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, so I'm good for a while. It, it does remind me of something real quick. Um, when I when I got here in 04, um, if you were to seize a kilo of heroin in our office, you were, you were pretty much a rock star. Like everyone, they're like, I can't believe you got a kilo of heroin. And to show you how far it's progressed, like, we're, we're seeing five to 10 kilo uh, heroin seizures in Detroit. And that's, wow. it's not uncommon. How are they, how's it coming in? Um, it's just it, Mexico's taken over the market. It, no, I mean, but primarily are they, are, are these like vehicle uh, traffickers? Mm -hmm. Are they coming in on the airlines? What's the preferred modality? It, it, we do, we do see some people bringing in um, check bags that have drugs and obviously people don't want to carry it on their person on a plane. But the most common uh, is vehicle couriers, and it, all these guys are using uh, complex compartments inside cars, you know, hydraulically. The concealment, con yeah, the conceal all the concealment, concealment areas, yeah. Traps is what we call them. So do you know, so I know DEA's job, DEA's mission is really not to go after the street-level users and distributors, but do you know through experience what the... Uh, percentage the purity level is of street level heroin that people are actually using in Detroit? You know, uh, 
it's crazy. We we talked to some actual users to to get some more information on this, and they've told us that they will not buy heroin, period, unless it has fentanyl in it. And this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. If if a addict dies of an overdose, um, other people will seek out the dealer that served that hot dose that killed that person to get the same product that killed that person because people believe that it's it's that potent. Like they want that potency that it can almost kill you. So it's, oh my gosh! Yeah, and that's it, these these guys will shoot together in a group and they'll have one guy and they call him the designated driver and they'll give him uh, the Narcan uh, nose puff. And then, you know, if a guy in a group, you know, turns blue and drops out, the designated driver will, you know, bring him back to life with a Narcan. Yeah. For the listeners that aren't familiar with that, explain what Narcan is. uh, Narcan is a chemical that it immediately shuts your brain receptors off so that it won't progress the effects of heroin or, or fentanyl. And it'll basically bring you back from the point of death when you're when you're overdosing. Do and so are the heroin users? Are they're not using needles? Are they? Are they snorting? Or what's the preferred method there uh, in Detroit? We still we still see mostly needle use. Oh really? Yeah, that's that's yeah. unusual. Man, I I remember some arrests. You, you'd start to search the person, and I'd see these long sleeves, and the first thing I do is I'd roll up the sleeves, and then you start seeing stuff like that, and it's like, it's man, nasty. I don't even want to. Uh, yeah, I don't even want to touch those arms. It's like, and then then yeah. I, as a little farm boy, I started learning. Guess what? They started shooting between their toes, you know, or other places like that. They'd yeah. run out of good veins, you know, or, to, to pop or, or the neck or or between oh, fingers, and just a lot of that's horrible, horrible, horrible addiction. Man, well, and now now we're adding all the opioids onto it. Like, say, you're talking about fentanyl, and now this is like, it, it, I don't think people realize how bad things are with that as well, too. I mean, when we talk fentanyl, we're talking about now uh, the amount of fentanyl that you could put onto your little finger could kill an entire room of people. Yeah, and, and uh, a lot of guys are, they're buying 100 grams of fentanyl, you know, through the mail or through China or the dark web. And they'll get this 100 grams of fentanyl, and then they'll mix it with the adult rinse, and they'll create a couple keys of, you know, fentanyl that, I mean, obviously each kilo sells for 50 grand. So it's just the uh, the markup is exponential of, of just starting from that small amount of fentanyl. But it's, you it's know, just, lucrative. I, for just, I just expound a little bit more on what Morgan said there. And because, you know, we as law enforcement or former law enforcement want to get this out as widely worldwide as we can, just how much fentanyl does it take to overdose, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, it, it's if you had a few grains of salt in your hand and if you had three or four grains of salt and each one was a, a piece of fentanyl, I mean, that that could kill you. And a lot of a lot of guys that have been shooting heroin their whole life can will overdose on this stuff if they get a bad batch. I mean... It, it just, it can it can kill you. Even if you're a lifelong user of heroin, it can still take you out. And just to stress what he said, ladies and gentlemen, he said grains. He didn't say grams. Right. Grains, like a grain of salt. We all know what a grain, how small a grain of salt is, and three or four of those can cause an overdose. So that's how dangerous fentanyl is. That's why people, you know, I mean, there's uh, a good friend of ours, Derek Maltz, who's retired, DEA, that, you know, he's all over Capitol Hill. He's all over uh, television shows and social media trying to 
preach the dangers associated with fentanyl and, um, you know, the manufacturers of that coming out of, out of Mexico and the Chinese provide the chemicals that produce fentanyl. So yeah. that's why it's such a big deal. Well, and what's a big deal, too, is when you're talking about 100 grams, I can hide 100 grams in a lot of places that makes it very difficult to locate and find, especially in a vehicle or even on my person if I'm going to go through airport security. You know, bringing in 100 grams is, you know. Grains. Grains. No, he was talking, I thought, earlier. Right. Yeah. um, You know, 100 grams is by 100 grams through the. Yeah. yeah. And and you can hide that in a lot of different places. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, yeah, don't 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 correct me, Steve. I know what I'm saying here. You know, I, I'm I'm on to things. I have a steel trap mind. Now, where were we? No. Hey, so one thing I wanted to do is kind of close off on this because we were talking about Sinaloa. And look, just doing some of the research on the stories, I, I tell you it breaks my heart. Um because because, you know, anytime you see a law enforcement officer killed, you know, it just it's just part part of you gets goes with it, and then but when you see what happens in Puerto Rico, when you see what's happened in Colombia, but then when I read stories to where thirteen Mexican uh, federal police officers are killed in an ambush, um, you've got the nine uh, uh, family members, the Mormon sect that were uh, up there in uh, uh, over by Sonora uh, that were killed. Um, and that's that's Sinaloa territory up there. You know, that's you know we we've got innocent people being killed, and this. And when you go back and look at Mexico's uh, history, they were talking about the number of people since two, 1964. They say 69,000 people, I think, have disappeared. But majority of those have been since 2006, where things really escalated. So when we start talking about just Sinaloa itself as a cartel, we're talking about one of the most violent organizations in the world that has heavy weapons, has armored vehicles, has ambushed and killed military officers, police officers. They have no compunction about killing to keep their business model going. And El Chapo, Joaquin Guzman, was the head of this organization for lots of years. You're exactly right. It's it's a billion dollar business. Um, they have no intention of slowing down. Um, they have a lot of influence over uh, the government in Mexico. So, and I, it's such a complex problem. I don't, I don't know how this can be stopped just with with what we're doing now. But it's just, it is huge, and it's here to stay. Well, the, the corruption levels, especially when it comes to El Chapo, you know, the, he got arrested twice in Mexico and escaped twice. All right. <laughs> and you look at the complexity of the situation, especially especially the second escape where they dug a tunnel into the prison. Spent a year doing that. It was a mile long. They spent a million dollars on it. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. yeah. Like a motorcycle rail car that went through the yep. tunnel and... Well, it's it's funny she mentioned that real quickly, just a couple things about El Chapo, Joaquin. I mean, he was uh, extradited to Mexico. He was arrested in Guatemala in 93, was sentenced to 20 years. He was fine inside prison running dope until 2001, until when, Steve, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? When the Mexican Supreme Court made it likely that Guzman was going to be extradited. Where do drug traffickers not want to end up? The United States, (laughs) which is, you know, that's a testament to our penal system here, I think. I think it's it's a good thing. Well, nobody wants to be an ADX, you know, Supermax out there in Florence, Colorado, so which is where he's at. So, yeah, you're right. He escaped a second time uh, through that. And so finally, finally, they arrest him in 2016 and 2017. He's extradited to the U.S. But Sinaloa is still a dangerous organization. But while Joaquin, while El Chapo was out, even so he was in custody sometimes, but out and about, 
this is where this whole next part of this story talks about, because what we want to do is lay the groundwork for why we're talking to you today as well, not just because you're a fun guy from Kansas City, Missouri originally, but did go to Pittsburgh State University, you know, Pittsburgh, Kansas, you know, rock on us, Kansas guys. <laughs> but this really, you started getting into a case now that became what uh, Clint Eastwood took on and a movie called The Mule about Leo Sharp. And Leo was a mule, a drug trafficker for the Sinaloa cartel. So. Yes. So what we wanted, that's the reason we've laid the groundwork on the Sinaloa cartel, because we want to start talking about now the what really happened in this case and what went on. So let's let's go back. Let us take you back then to the first connection to this case. How did that start? Where, when did this wheel start turning that turned into this big operation we're going to talk about? This, this all started um, in 2011 in the summertime, and we were hitting some smaller guys in southwest Detroit you know, just a couple kilos here, a couple kilos there. And these guys were leading us towards a man named Jesus Bustamante, who was a Sinaloa guy. He was uh, an upper level guy. And we didn't, we didn't know that. So we ended up um, contacting this individual. We actually went to his house and interviewed him. And he was, he was actually cooperative. He said, Hey, um, I can help you guys out. There's a man you need to look at. His name is Ramon Ramos. And, um, he said, that's, that's the guy that's kind of running things in Detroit. And I'm, it was interesting because um, Bustamante said, hey, come back tomorrow and I'll give you guys some more information. So we ended up leaving his house. We came back the next day. And in the middle of the night, he had moved his entire family out of the house and furniture, vehicles, clothing, and moved them back to Mexico. And we had, we had found out a few years later that he had called his bosses in Mexico about our visit. And they told him, yeah, you need to come back to Mexico immediately because we can't have you there with the FBI knocking on your door. So we ended up um, targeting Ramon Ramos. Uh, we got a search warrant for his house in Lincoln Park, Michigan. We hit his door, and he ended up having $300,000 in, ba- in his basement. And what was interesting is he had a set of um, small books, these little ledgers, and these ledgers were, um, they were all coded with different um, images of names and things that represented customers. And um, this this individual, Ramos, was basically a, a bookkeeper for the Sinaloa cartel for the entire city of Detroit. And the, it, it detailed hundreds and hundreds of kilos in these little ledgers. Um, he ended up... Um, he wasn't he wasn't Mexican, so he had uh, a little bit less in, uh, fear of cooperating because he didn't have family that was in Mexico. Who was he from originally? He was from the Dominican Republic. Okay, and so he was kind of an outsider. He was an outsider to the organization uh, as far as having family. Well, how does an outsider like that? Did you? Ever, how does an outsider like that from the Dominican Republic end up having? Uh, I mean. It's like Al Capone's bookkeeper. This is the this is these this is the internal workings of where the money goes, of where the dope goes. This is the brains of the whole operation. How does a DR guy get hooked in with Sinaloa? It's an interesting question. Um, his boss, who ran the entire thing, was a guy named Jose Lucero Bustamante, and he began his career in Detroit as an ounce level dealer, and obviously moved up to kilos marijuana. Uh, but it, through the progression of his career, he had always befriended Ramos, and they had kind of worked together, and, and Ramos did the heavy lifting for him. Uh, Ramos 
um, ended up driving trucks for them to transport dope between uh, Michigan and the border. And so that relationship kind of stayed intact for 10 years until they, they just got so big and Ramos kept taking more uh, risky jobs that kind of elevated his position in the organization. Like he would volunteer to do bigger loads and, or he'd volunteer to transport 4 million back to Arizona. And when you work in the cartel, if you take on more responsibility, um, you, 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 you gain more stature and higher ranking. And even though he was Dominican, he was always just a reliable guy and he, he got the job done. And then before you knew it, he was a 300 kilo guy. He was, you know, moving $8 million at a time. And uh, just out of blind luck, this guy goes, I knew you were coming. I knew you visited um, Jesus Bustamante. He told me you were coming for me. And uh, I'm doing this for my family. I got a little kid. Um, I want to get out of the life. So I'm, I'm your guy. Now, you mentioned uh, he was not Mexican, so he didn't have to worry about family. Can you explain what you mean by that? The hardest part about getting people to cooperate is, um, especially for people that are Mexican, is they have family members back in Mexico. <laughs> and, and if it's discovered that they are cooperating, it presents a danger to their family back home. And that, and that really prevents a lot of people from, from helping us out. It's just, I, you know, that I want to help you. But, you know, my parents live in Mexico. You know, they can get to them if, they co if I cooperate. And what do you mean by getting to them? If the cartel finds out, you know, you're cooperating with the law enforcement, they'll threaten your parents in Mexico or kidnap them and, or things of that nature. And so just, it's, it's, it's going to be death for the family. That's that right, they use exactly. that to help keep you in line, basically, right? Right. Now, Jeff, you were talking about the money, too, because money was one of the big things. Uh, Ramos led you actually to some money in an RV, um, I think about $2 million of somebody named Walter Ogden. Tell us about Walter. And this starts getting to some of the tactics the cartel was using to move dope and money. We were interviewing Ramos uh, immediately when he started cooperating, and he was running through the numbers that his, his organization was moving. And honestly, we didn't believe him when we called him on it. We just said, hey, we've never seen those type of numbers in Detroit. I think you're embellishing a little bit. And he said, all right, Jeff, how about we do this? How about you set up surveillance uh, two days from now at a warehouse in Wyandotte, Michigan? I'll give you the address, and we'll have a motorhome stop by and pick up $2 million, and you can stop it. I was like, well, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll, you know, we'll be out there. And so like clockwork, 830, um, Walter Ogden, who's a, a guy out of Oklahoma, uh, his, his background is, is he's been a courier as well for the organization, and the cartel ended up buying him two motorhomes just specifically for the purpose of transporting uh, drugs and money. And each one of these motorhomes had false walls and hidden compartments and stuff like that. So we, we set up on uh, August 6th. Uh, Walter shows up and his motorhome pulls up to the warehouse. And then within a matter of minutes, uh, we see him loading duffel bags into the motorhome. He's on the highway. We pull him over and there was close to $2 million hidden inside the, the false walls and everything of his, of his vehicle. When you say we pulled them over, tell us about how that goes down, because you're not talking about that DEA puts a light on the top of their car and pulls them over, or were you using another agency? Right. It, 
one of the techniques that we use is um, in order to preserve the investigation, uh, we'll make it look like a normal traffic stop. We'll do a walled off stop where uh, we'll pull over a courier for a traffic offense. And I don't remember what he was pulled over. It might've been speeding or a lane violation. And then, you know, you stop him on this traffic violation and then through the course of that roadside interview and interaction, you develop further uh, reasonable suspicion to look deeper into, you know, what's it, what's going on with his reason for travel? You know, is there a problem with this story? Is there something that's suspicious about, you know, what's going on with that stop? And it just through the stop, there's enough uh, probable cause developed where we were able to run a drug dog around the around his trailer. The dog alerted to the the scent of narcotics, and the the scent of narcotics was on the money, right? right. Or was it also being used to transport dope too? Or was that just strictly no, a money it, vehicle? This, this this vehicle was the heavy mover for the the organization. It they would put anywhere from two to three hundred kilos in it coming northbound, and I think the most money they've ever had in it was eight million. But on this one, they told us it was actually a small lube. <laughs> It was in, it ended up being two million, um, just stuffed into a false wall in the back and underneath the floor. Yeah, and, and that brings up another issue of transporting bulk cash. It's you know people like us who you really if it wasn't for our job, I would never see a million dollars in cash. You know, and, and once you see it, you realize just how much physical space it takes up. So to, yeah. if that motorhome, we all know how big a motorhome is. If you can cram $8 million in there, well, you've probably packed out that entire motorhome, right? Yeah, drug money is all um, mostly 10s and 20s. And then, you know, in the movies, they kind of show you one little briefcase has has a million dollars. And it's really, it's, it's it takes up a lot of space. It, the, the two million filled the entire back of, a, of, an, of an SUV to the top. Well, Jeff, one of the things that tells me, and don't take this wrong, I mean, this is said in a professional way, but <laughs> what you guys thought you knew and what was really going on were way two different things in Detroit, weren't they? Absolutely. Well, and that's that's what I'm saying is that a lot of times you go, I had no idea this was going on under our nose, which it, it tells you what they're doing is so nondescript, right? So how were they away? How were they able to get away with it for so long without it coming to the attention of, of DEA or somebody, somebody with three letters? Yeah, it, it it is embarrassing at first because you're like, I, this is the most drugs we've ever seen, and we we had no idea that this was happening. And um, it, these guys, uh, there was there was the core of the guys that were taking the dope. There were six of them, and they called it getting a suitcase. And a suitcase had twenty five kilos in it. And each of these five guys would get two suitcases. And it was always the same, the same customers. There was never really an outside person brought into the organization. Um, everyone kind of had a, a working part that they had to fulfill. And it was just to the point where, you know, they had, they had grown to a level without getting caught for so many years that it just kept going. You know, they, they obviously started out doing five kilos, 10, 20, and then usually your top plateau is 50 to 100 kilos at a time. And it just, you know, you don't get caught for so long and you, and you figure out the things that you're doing right. This is this is interesting, too, that we learned. Um, if there's a house uh, that's going to receive a large shipment of dope anywhere, like let's, if it's in the suburb or, or in Detroit, what happens is, is 30 minutes before that load arrives, members of the organization will drive 
uh, in loops around the block for 30 minutes looking for guys sitting in tinted out cars. And if they see that, they'll they'll cancel the they'll cancel that shipment or have it brought to a different spot. But there's just the point is, is there's a lot of counter surveillance looking for us before it actually actually lands somewhere. And so when when you've got the say let's call it the Ramos organization for lack of a better title here, is that the only organization bringing cocaine into Detroit? Uh, they were bringing uh, marijuana as well, but we didn't actually seize a lot of marijuana during the case. But that was the only sale operating to provide Detroit cocaine and marijuana? It was just Ramos' little group, or were there, there others? There, there were other groups. This was just the largest one that we had seen. Yeah, so this is just one sale of many operating right. in the city, right? Exactly. And it happens in every city and, and, and some of the smaller city, maybe larger towns throughout the entire United States, doesn't it? You know, they employed uh, uh, things you do in the intelligence community, military. It's operational security, right? They kept their group of people small, of trusted people small. They knew the players. Nobody from the outside was coming in. And so, yeah, you're going to get away with stuff, you know, for a long time. But this is this. But this little two kilo uh, or this little thing with Ramos, you know, that really started this whole train moving. And during that time that you when you did the surveillance on Ogden uh, with the with the uh, RV, was that the first time you got wind of uh, what who was called Tata later to be known as Leo Sharp? Was that the first time or was that later on? No. It, after we hit this motorhome, you know, just everyone's attitude was a lot different towards Ramos. We immediately said, You have hey, a lot of credibility at that like, point, hey, didn't you? We owe you an apology. You know, this is... This is crazy. And um, he kind of told us, he kind of gave us a layout of the organization. Um, but Ramos and another guy named Teddy Zach, who uh, owned a bar in Lincoln Park, Michigan, were kind of the bookkeepers over the organization. They had matching sets of ledgers. Uh, if 200 kilos came in in March and 4 million went out, you know, a couple of weeks later, both individuals had to present the books to the cartel in Mexico and run down the numbers saying, hey, this individual paid for 50, this individual paid for 100. And they had this du uh, dual set of accountants that kind of did checks and balances on each other. So we were, we knew we had one set of the books with us, but we didn't have the other set. And we were dealing with one accountant, why the other one obviously didn't know that we were involved with Ramos. So it was it was just an interesting dynamic of how there was a lot of accountability um, across the border where they could call at any time and, and check these guys' ledgers to make sure, you know, something wasn't missing. No honor among thieves, is there? Yeah, exactly. But there's accountability, though. I'll tell you what. We have Price Waterhouse Cooper, our accountant, looking <laughs> over these books here. Um, so how did you come to learn about Leo Sharp? At that time, he was called Tata. Was that from the Ogden stop, or did that come later? No, we, we learned there, was, uh, there were three couriers. Um, there was Ogden. There was a guy named Mark Bailey out of California. He was a 100-kilo guy. And then there was a third guy that... Um, they just described him as the grandfather and he had nicknames too, like Tata and, you know, they called him the old man. And, um, they said he's, they said he, he's, he had been working for the cartel for well over 10 years. And, um, he, he only used two trucks. They were Lincoln Mark pickup trucks. They had bed covers and he would literally throw duffel bags to 300 kilos in this truck 
and just uh, cowboy it all the way from Tucson. He'd just drive straight through? Yeah, he he would pull over for a few hours, maybe just take a nap at a rest stop, but he, he wouldn't stay in a hotel. Um, he he did on the time that it was it was crazy. The time that he came and we caught him, he had a severe um, issue with his teeth, and he had to stop for a day and uh, get his teeth fixed at a dentist's office, and that delayed his trip by a day. Um, but every other time, it was a straight shot. And he was so comfortable, he didn't even try to hide the dope, did he? No, it just was just it was it was it was underneath a bed cover in the bed of the pickup truck in duffel bags. Um, there wasn't like a hidden compartment or anything like that. And if, you know, didn't if you try were, to disguise it with other legitimate produce or furniture yeah, or whatever. He would throw other things in there. Um, he would, th- I don't know why he did this, but he would always throw uh, bushels of pecans or oranges in the back of that with him. And I don't know the reason for that because you could just see the duffel bag and open it up and see the drugs in there. <laughs> so let's talk about how this thing starts unfolding. So one thing leads to another. Now Ramos has got obviously tremendous credibility. What did you? What What, what were some of the other steps you started? Because now this is going from just a, hey, a couple of us can handle it. This is starting to get bigger. Yeah, the case. The cases. What's interesting about the case is, is there's always something in movement. I mean, there's never a time where it's static. There's always drugs moving north or money moving south. So there's not a lot of time to sit there and kind of you know, decide what we're going to do. We really have to make a decision on how to take these loads. You know, we can't let a hundred kilos hit the street. You know, it it has to be taken down. We knew that Mark Bailey was making um, a run out of California with a hundred kilos after Ogden. So we ended up downing him in Colorado on a walled off traffic stop, grabbed, grabbed his load um, and stopped that courier. So now, the next courier in line was uh, the grandfather, or Leo Sharp, and he was the next one, or the final one that we actually hit. But in, in preparation for him, there was a lot of things that went on behind the scenes. We ended up doing seven wiretaps on guys that were coordinating his his travel, and um, just lots of surveillance, uh, 24-hour surveillance on the warehouse where everything was happening at. So there was just, it was it was a lot of working parts that kind of had to come together. So, but the first time you saw him, did you, was that, um, was that how soon before, and we'll get into the arrest in a minute, but but all you had at that time was the name Tata or like Viejo. Did you ever know his name before his arrest? No. Well, we did. We, he, he came into town to pick up money. And we followed him out of town and, and ended up getting his plate. And then um, we didn't we didn't stop him with the money. So we, we had him identified from that, just from him showing up to the warehouse and, and picking up drug proceeds. So we were ready on his return uh, when he was going to come back with a full load of, of cocaine. And that ended up being, you know, obviously in October where we had the wiretaps going. We knew he was en route. Um, we were tracking him, and then it was a matter of just finding him on the highway. Well, even Lee or even Leo, you know, Tata, he had his own handler, so he was being handled by somebody. Who was that? His, um, I'll, I'll get into kind of his uh, history, which is interesting with the drug cartel. He actually worked for two brothers out of Chicago for a few years, and he was 
transporting marijuana exclusively for these two bro- two brothers. And the cartel began to notice the success that this courier was having. I mean, he was never losing a load. And so there was a um, there was a party at a lake house. I think it was somewhere in Chicago. It was these uh, higher level cartel guys were all having a get together barbecue. Leo Sharp was there, and Pedro Delgado Sanchez uh, pulled him to the side at the party and said, "Hey, come work, come work for me. Um, it's cocaine. It's it's easier. It's quicker money. You're gonna make you're gonna make a lot more money than marijuana, which." Obviously, it smells horrible when you have it all stuck in the back of your pickup truck. <laughs> yeah. And so this guy, Pedro uh, Delgado Sanchez, pulled him away and gets him exclusively locked into this contract, um, moving a bulk hundred kilo quantities of cocaine out of Tucson. And he does that exclusively for 10 years without without ever getting caught. <laughs> Had he been pulled over the when as you guys did your research later, you know, we're looking back in time, had he been stopped before? Yeah. Yeah. He he um he would have like a little routine stop, you know, that he you know, w- when he got stopped, he'd always kill the guy with kindness. He would always have a joke and just, you know, try to really give this portrayal of, you know, he was visiting his daughter in Michigan and, and you know, he kind of had his backstory ready. And he always made it known that he was a, a, a World War II veteran and, you know, kind of things to diminish your suspicion of this individual. And and, and also, I can't remember where his plates are from. They might have been from South Dakota, but it was a state that really doesn't red flag to somebody that, you know, this is a courier vehicle. It's right. just a license plate that kind of downplayed that. Because I got to tell you, as a trooper, as a Kansas trooper, not a Missouri trooper, as a Kansas trooper, but we had our guys doing, you know, stops. And I, you, you go back and think it's like you. I will tell you something to me that was professionally embarrassing is I realized I'd stopped a car one time, talked to the guy, had a couple things, but should have asked for consent or sort of searched it, let it go on. Guess what? He ends up getting stopped later, has like 80 kilos, you know, in the thing. He stopped up on interstate, yes. and I'm going, damn it, that was my, you know. I, I mean, I, yeah. I remember stopping a car. You talk about the backstory too. Um, when I was a police officer, I stopped a car one night. I was, I was going home. I was working the midnight shift, and I just, I, I didn't have my wallet, and I needed to get something to eat. So I'm like, ah. And I see this car go by me, and it's got no taillights. Well, my trooper days kick in, like, you, no taillights? Hey, you're my kind of car, you know? But I, am I going to stop it or not? Long story short, end up stopping at three guys in there. None of them have their story straight about why they're in town for that point. Get consent to search. Well, the guy, first of all, says, hey, you know, I'll even help you. He shows me his briefcase, and I look at it. Not much in there. I said, well, you know, you know, you have any objection if we search the trunk now? Open up the trunk, $202,000 in cash in the trunk. Come to find out in the briefcase was plans for a methamphetamine laboratory amongst wow. everything else. Yeah. <laughs> but but you go, but but that the whole point about it is you go, this stuff's going on in front of me. And it's like, I, but I know what the guy did. And I to this day, I just sit in regard. He was so unassuming, didn't say he had a good story, had it locked down. What I didn't have that the other guys had was a dog. And I think the dog, mm-hmm. dogs, especially out there, make such a huge difference. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. The, the canines do, right? Yeah. But let me tell you real quick, too, one of the favorite tricks I saw other guys pull. Don't know if it's, I think it's constitutional, but you'd have these signs set up, <laughs> and they would say, drug inspection lane ahead, yeah, narcotics right. dogs in use, yeah. and you'd look for the people to make yeah, illegal they're, they're U-turns. The <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. But anyway, let's enough about us. Let's get back to you, Jeff. You are our guest of dishonor oh. here. Um <laughs> Well, actually, I thought the moral of that story was you took part of that $202,000 and bought dinner for yourself that night. 
No, see, people say you found so you found two hundred and two thousand. I said no, I turned in two hundred and two thousand. There's oh. a difference. But you know, cops. No, <laughs> yeah, I, but um, but, but you know, I was broke. We weren't making anything. Both of my wife and I are in our second marriage, not making any money. But when you're a cop and you're doing stuff like that, it's for the trophy picture, dudes. Oh. You know, it's not like no. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, got, I got something. I got something you don't. And here's a picture of all the money. You oh, know, that's true. And, and if you go on social media, it's 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 uh, funny or pathetic. I'm not sure yeah. which to see how many retired guys are posting those old war f- photos. Oh, on social uh, media. Yeah. Still still living for the high school football days. But anyway, Jeff, back to you. Back to our regularly scheduled <laughs> podcast okay. here. So, uh, because this is far more interesting, uh, and there's a lot more money involved. But so Leo's been stopped. You know, he's gotten out of it. But but now you've gotten on to him. So tell us now, how does this operation start unfolding when you have to start making certain decisions at some point to say, we've got to bring this to a close. We've got to start taking people off. And one of the dangers, I think, is you've already taken off one of their couriers on a traffic stop. Are you not concerned that if you take another one off, it's like they're going to go, uh, I don't believe in coincidences. Maybe that's too many in too short a time. Right. Exactly. That's a good question. We knew um, that stopping Leo Sharp would be the end of the show. Because there's just there's just so much that these guys can take before they're like, yeah, something's not right. I mean, they, they when uh, Mark Bailey was stopped in, in Colorado, they were like, yeah, it's no big deal. He was actually driving on a suspended license, and ended up getting stopped and arrested with the with the drugs. And they they said that was fine. Uh, the two million gets hit in the in the motorhome, and they weren't good with that. But they were like, let's just keep doing business. And we knew as soon as Sharp was going to get hit that they would know what was up. So we we were ready at that point. Um, once Leo Sharp was going to get hit, that we would have, you know, some search warrants ready and, and um, things in place to start arresting people or basically doing the takedown part of the of the of the case. But there's something about this case, so I want you to dive into it again. Like I said, you're still on active duty, but you made you made history too. You did a first of its kind in terms of the use of what's called Title Threes and wiretaps. What can what can you tell us about the first of its kind? Right, uh, a, nor- a normal wiretap is is very labor intensive to be able to tap someone's phone. The affidavits range from thirty to forty pages of of why you need to listen to someone's phone call, and it's it's always the last option. You, you can't even do a wiretap unless you've tried 10 other things and they've failed. Um, they actually have another type of wiretap, which rises above that called a roving wiretap. And if you have an individual that um, continuously drops their phone every week or every few days, and you've been unsuccessful in three normal wiretaps of this, you have to actually write several wiretaps for the for this individual that have failed for the fact that he keeps changing his phone and then you you're eligible to create this or apply for this roving wiretap and a simplified way of explaining it is you're not really writing the phone anymore you're writing the individual so that whatever new phone that he picks up you can immediately start listening to that to that uh that that device but it's they don't give these out very much. They're very difficult to obtain. And um, our, our prosecutor, he, I mean, he, his name is Chris Gravlin. I'll give him some shout outs, but he was one of the most aggressive prosecutors I've ever worked with. And without him, this case wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened. But he, he pushed, he, he suggested, let's push through the roving. We've never done it. 
and he made it happen in our district. When you say a, a wiretap, so Title Three is under the U.S. Code, and that's the title that authorizes wiretap communication. And you say that's the last tool in your investigator's toolbox. Can you explain why that is? The, the courts consider listening to uh, protected electronic communications as a, as a very serious intrusion on your right of privacy. And in order to do that, you have to meet a threshold that your surveillance was unsuccessful, you were unsuccessful in uh, using this informant to get to this part of the case. You did a few other things. You did a search warrant and it didn't work. There, there's mm -hmm. a, th a list of things that they want to see you try before you right. before you get to the wiretap. Right. It's we've even uh, we had one case in North Carolina where we even put ghillie suits on and crawled through the woods for hours to see if we could get close enough to do physical surveillance. And, you know, there's just too many dogs. And this was out in the country. There's just too many dogs that kept giving you away. Yeah. But that's, you know, and the, and the reason I brought that up is because well, you see, see that's because you were chasing a bone yourself. Somebody threw out, hey, here's a kilo and Steve would go running off after it. <laughs> Uh, the reason I throw that out there is because, if, you know, what we see on TV is not reality where, uh, oh, yeah, Jeff Moore, yeah, he got caught speeding, so we're going to go up on a wiretap because he's obviously a drug trafficker or he's doing something yeah. illegal, you know. It's not like you see on TV. It is, quite honestly, it's a pain in the butt to do it's a wiretap. Very, it? And it's, it's reviewed by three or four different attorneys. It goes to D.C. where an attorney in Washington, D.C. reviews it. And if, it, and if it's not... Um, perfect they'll kick it back i mean it, yeah well and people don't understand too you've got things that are moving that are very fast moving things that are unraveling and yet you have to stop and write potentially a 30 to 40 page document that had to be a lot of fun jeff i mean you talked about giving up your boring life as a graphic artist to do 40 page affidavits that you know at the snap of a finger well i i, I promise I'd, I'd mention my partners justin holton and jeremy fitch there, there, there's three of us on the case and um, we, we divided the, the workload and I couldn't have done it without those guys either. And, and, and uh, teamwork brothers, teamwork. J Jeremy's a much better writer than me. And, and so is Justin and those guys could knock out wiretaps pretty quickly. Nice. So you were the eye candy then. You were the face of it. You were going to be the pretty face that led the investigation is what you're telling us, well, right? Uh, hey, they I, got, uh, they got Bradley Cooper to play him in the movie, man. Yeah, holy cow. Look at yeah. that. <laughs> Well, that's because I because uh, I turned it down. They came to yeah, me first, exactly. but no. Yeah, because exactly. you've got a face for radio, yeah. my friend. <laughs> hey, I still have all my hair, Steve. Um, hey, I've got 18 left. Count them. <laughs> but, but let's talk about that, your division of labor. How did you, on this particular operation with your two partners, and tell us their names again. We want to make sure they give you credit. How did you guys divide and conquer uh, this fast-moving op? Yeah, I was, uh, our case, we had three guys. It was myself, Justin Holton, and Jeremy Fitch. And um, good job, guys. I mean, these guys Seriously. are these guys are phenomenal. Uh, the things you have to get done is you have to con you have to consistently work with Ramos on a daily basis. You have to meet with him and figure out what's changed. Um, he's wearing a body wire with all these guys. You know, you have to you basically manage what he's doing, um, and then you've got um, a lot of other things where you know there's guys that are trying to get the the wiretap going and. We're using Spanish linguists to monitor the wires, and, and those guys need to be supervised in the wire room that are, you know, you have these uh, linguists that listen to the call, and then they'll explain it to you in English, and you have to decide, are they really bringing a crate of oranges? Just, or is that code for something? Well, a specific example, in my, anytime I've been on a wiretap that's been a Mexican wiretap, drugs has always been food. 
And so you'll hear the guys say, hey, everyone in Detroit's really hungry. We need to get that food up there. And that is just, I mean, that's just one-on-one uh, boilerplate code for drugs need to make it to Detroit. So you're, you're hearing um, the translations from Spanish to English that have been coded, and then you got to figure out what that means and, and go from there. Well, one of the reasons it worked with Ramos, him being wired up, because he was so trusted, right? He was in there. He was not going to get searched each time he came in there. Towards if you introduce somebody new, they're going to be worried about this person, right? So Ramos had that trust factor going for him, which allowed you to get a lot of these critical wires or this information being recorded off of him. He every day we would um, we put a body wire on him. He would go meet with uh, one of the one of the guys. He you know he'd have a conversation. Hey, the next load's coming in. Are you going to need one or two suitcases? And, you know, they would capture that conversation. He'd meet with us. He'd hand us a device. We'd hand him a new device. And it was just continuously just kind of stockpiling the evidence of, of what they're saying to Ramos in person, you know, about, you know, hey, I need this much and I'm going to, I'm going to sell it in two weeks. And that's, so and this, that's the, this becomes very surveillance intensive as well, right? Once this whole case started, it was there was just there was no downtime. It was just because mm-hmm. once you're interfering with the mechanics of, of the case, things start changing, and you just have to really continuously keep adapting to to what these guys are going to do next. And and we were just luckily we had you know a lot of hardworking guys that were like you know spend 14 days at the office trying to knock out the reports, the wiretaps, and. You know, we'd have to, we'd always meet with Ramos um, in the Home Depot parking lot behind. It was like three times a week we'd have to meet with him behind Home Depot and, you know, get the new information, go over what was in the ledger, you know, talk about the next shipment that was coming. So there's really no days off. There's no time off. This is an all hands on deck. You guys are operating pretty much 24-7 during this time? Yeah. And the the danger is, is something makes it through like you're you're not on your game and then for some reason 100 kilos makes it to detroit and, and you weren't able to inter- intercept it and that's i mean that's something you you know you can't have you want to guard against yeah because yeah. that's that's the dangerous part well and let's talk a little bit about that too because part of the reason we're talking with jeff and this will be we talk about this in the intro to the podcast um but because of this, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I want to set a little context. Uh, the New York Times ends up writing a story about the Sinaloa cartel's unlikely mule, which was Leo Sharp. And that's what the article, and this is one of, this is what's interesting. This was not a book or anything else. This was just a newspaper article that ended up being turned into a movie. And in, and as with Narcos, as with Stephen Javier, there's some things that happened in Narcos that's just plain BS, just never happened, but you do it because it's Hollywood, right? Yeah. So I need to know now, Jeff, you need to come clean on, on this podcast. Did you actually sit down and have coffee with Leo Sharp <laughs> in the coffee house. at a Waffle House? Um, he, we actually followed him through a drive-thru, and it was, I think it was a steak and shake. And he ended up buying a, he ended up buying a burger he got back on the highway and he had forgot his drink that he'd ordered in the drive-thru and he got back off the highway and went back to the restaurant and we thought that something had went wrong. We thought that he had seen us and we're like, why is he going back to this steak and shake place? And then later when we arrested him, he's like, oh, I've, I've, I, I forgot my French fries or my drink or something. <laughs> yeah, see, this is a fun part about operations. We've been made. They've got us. It's like the guys go, no, I forgot my fries. No big deal. Like, we were terrified. We're like, something went wrong. Someone took a burn. 
And then when you arrest him, he's like, no, I, I forgot my Diet Coke or whatever it was in the drive-thru. <laughs> you know, how many surveillances have you been on your life you thought you were burned? Everyone? <laughs> well, we, we do burn our, our fair share of surveillances, so it's not uncommon to take a burn. <laughs> it does happen. But I don't know. Every time you go out, that's, we had some guys that would go out in our group. This was down in Miami days back in the 80s, and we wouldn't be out there on surveillance 15 minutes. Oh, hell, I'm burned. He got me. He knows who I am. <laughs> No, you're not going home early. You're still going to stay. That's right. <laughs> so let's. So he he forgets his fries, his drink, whatever. You think you're burned, but he's back out on the highway. So when is the first time you actually come into contact with Leo that day? When who spots him and where do they spot him at? Where you finally say, "We got the guy. We we have the eye on him now." Uh, we had a description of both his pickup trucks. Um, one was black, I believe, and. We had the license plates, and we were we were staggered on 94 between Chelsea and um, Ann Arbor, you know, where each one of us is 30 miles apart, all linked by radio. And then the, and then the guy that's furthest west uh, is, is lucky enough to see that pickup truck pass him, and then he just relays it down the line where he says, hey, I, I think this is his truck. He, you know, he catches up to it, verifies the plate, and says, yeah, this is our truck. And then from that point, you know, you're in tandem with your surveillance crew in, until you can get your uh, your March patrol car to pull them over. Did you have anything up in the air at that point, or was this all just ground surveillance? It was ground surveillance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you coordinate then? Because now you're in Michigan, so it's the Michigan State Police. So how do you guys go about coordinating with them? Because is this a last-minute deal, or do you have guys standing, uh, wait, standing by waiting to be activated in case you find him? No, we, we work with the Michigan State Police uh, very closely, and they've been a, a great partner in this case. And, you know, they said, whatever you need from us, let us know. And um, they, ha- they had a great interdiction guy set up for us, uh, a canine officer. And um, uh, he, was, he was at a certain position. I think he was near Chelsea, Michigan. That's where we, we agreed to do the stop. And so we're, we're tailing uh, Leo Sharp for about an hour. We get to the point where we want the stop to occur, and we have our our MSP guy set up. We radio to him, "Hey, we're five minutes out. We're one minute out. He's 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 at your position." And then the MS the marked unit falls in behind him. You look for a traffic violation, and then he pulls him over for that for that violation. Which wasn't hard for Leo, I understand, right? Because at eighty seven years old, he wasn't exactly the best driver either. At that point, was he? Yeah, he he was he was doing some things that were pretty crazy. I don't I don't know if it was his personality or if he was having trouble seeing the highway, but he he was driving a little crazy. So it was not hard to come up with a reason to pull this guy over, right? Yeah, I mean he was he he legitimately needed to be pulled over. <laughs> so he, Leo, we're saving you from yourself. Trust yeah, us. It yeah. Was, yeah. And I saw a little bit of the video. Of course, didn't get to see the whole dash cam video. But to, but tell where are you at at this time when MSP is pulling him over? Where are you? Where's DEA at this point when uh, the marked police cars um, got him? We're 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 behind him in a a narc trail or a trail of cars. He gets pulled over, and then we end up just pulling off on the next exit past him while he's on the side of the road being pulled over. The the trooper actually asked Leo if he wouldn't mind pulling into a rest area, which was a few like a quarter mile down the, down the road. Cause it, it was a little dangerous on that highway with the traffic. So Leo said, yeah, I'll pull into uh, this rest stop. So they ended up pulling into the rest stop with Leo and we, we were already in the rest stop 
you know, just kind of blended in with other cars. And um, from that point, it was just uh, just a, it's a routine um, interview and, you know, where the, the MSP troopers asking him questions, you know, where are you going and what are you doing and, and stuff like that and looking for indicators that there's drugs in his, in his truck. And he, he ends up giving consent for the truck. Um, and, it, and at that point, Leo's sitting in the front seat um, of the of the MSP trooper car, and you can hear him talking through the the recording where he's actually nervous and he's making little comments to himself like, "Oh, I'm going to go to prison forever." As soon as they open that trunk. Well, the one that got me was he said, "Just shoot me now." Just you know, he basically just tells him to shoot him. Yeah, it. He he had said that. Every time, every time he turned around, he was like, "I'm going to kill myself." And he even said that in court in front of people. But he was saying that in the in the, in the car, like, "Yeah, just just kill me now." Um, but you know, obviously, uh, the dog hit on the trunk and and opened it up, and you know, and that's were, that covered bed of the truck. And yeah, he, he said yeah. he didn't have the keys too, if I remember right. He said his sister in Iowa has the keys. What is your sister in Iowa doing with the keys to the cover on your truck? Yeah, and we and, and at that point. You know, the, the dog is hit, and the trooper's like, if, you know, we don't get the key, we're going to have to force this lock and, you know, damage the lock. So I I don't remember how they got that lock. I don't know if they ended up forcing it or they actually did I find a key. I watched the video. It looks like yeah. he just lifted up on it fairly hard, and it just, like, looks like it yeah, popped open. It, it, That's what it I saw. Yeah, I think it was they snapped that hard enough to, to pop that lock, and it opened right up. Well, look, if I'm a trooper and I, you tell me there's 100 kilos in this car, that top's coming off. That's all I got to tell you, man. <laughs> you pull out your shotgun and blow the lock open. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's okay. You know, it's we'll, we'll get this top off one way or the other. So so, um, so now, when do you get the bus signal? Now, do you guys get involved at all out there on the scene, or are yes. you guys still staying behind the scenes? It, it's, it's real low-key. Um we the drugs the drugs are located obviously in duffel bags. There's 104 kilos. Um, uh, Leo Sharp's handcuffed. He's read his rights, and then I ended up coming back to talk to the trooper. I identified myself to Mr. Sharp. Say I'm Jeff Moore with the DEA. We're going to transport you back to our office in Detroit, Michigan, where we'll we'll talk about the situation. And um, and that's. That's where I got to learn a lot about Leo because we were in the car for a good hour and a half. Just and I didn't ask him any case, any questions about his arrest. We just literally talked about his life, um, you know how he grew up and what'd you learn? He had had just an an incredible life. Um, he had told me that uh, he was a World War II veteran in uh, I think it was the Battle of Monte Cassino in Italy in. I mean, that was a brutal World War II battle, and you literally could have made a movie just about Leo Sharp in that battle. But he, he was telling me about his experiences in World War II. Um, when he got out of the service, he ended up opening a travel company where he had two airliners, and he, would, he was running small routes between Chicago and Vegas. And uh, that company ended up going under. But he, he had some other business ventures and... Um, he told me at one time he was, he was a millionaire. He's actually had a lot of money and was living kind of this grand lifestyle and just kind of enjoying being a wealthy guy and ended up buying uh, a big farm out in Michigan 
city, Indiana, you know, and is the movie, the movie was pretty accurate where he became a botanist where he was growing daylilies and he was doing something called hybridization where you would combine two lilies to create a, a new species of this plant. And, um, he had become pretty prominent in that field to the point where, I don't know if this is true, but he told me that George Bush senior, uh, had him to the white house and he ended up planting some of these new species of lilies in the, in the rose garden. Well, you know how I know that's probably not true? Because if it was true, they would have been in a political commercial somewhere saying, look at these Republicans bringing drug dealers to the White House. No, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's true or not. But, uh, yeah, but that's one way to look. look, look it's the old joke. What's yeah. the difference between love and YouTube? YouTube is forever. Uh, so if anything happens and it's out there, man, they're putting it up there. So, uh, but let's talk a little bit more. So, I mean, you learn it. So here's the question. And it, it, to me, if I'm sitting there, the one question I want to ask is, I mean, you're, you said you're a millionaire. You've got this daylily thing. I mean, you are, you globally, know, you know, I mean, you're internationally known for this. Why the hell are you involved in trafficking dope for one of the most dangerous cartels in the entire world? We, we had learned through other people that he, 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 he was enamored with this lifestyle of being um, recognized for things he had done, you know, owning the airline and being this world famous botanist. And then when he kind of fell on hard times and the farm wasn't making any money and he was just, I, I don't think he was a good business person. And so he, he just kind of made it, made mistakes that ended up bankrupting him. And then he got to the point where he was just, um, he didn't have any money left. And, and the, the guys that were working, he had some uh, immigrant day laborer guys that were on his um, farm in Michigan City. And they saw that he was having trouble paying guys and keeping the lights on. And, you know, they approached him and said, hey, you know, you want to earn some money and, um, you know, do X, Y, and Z to, to make some cash. And then I don't know if that was the only lure, but it, that seems to be the main reason that he got into that lifestyle because he, maybe he was hoping that he could eventually get back to where he was. He couldn't get, he got addicted to that. And he couldn't give it up. Yeah. The money being the man, the money. And plus it, it, he, he had gotten so big in the cartel that he was a celebrity. You know, he would, they'd bring him to Mexico and they would take him on vacations. They would pay for his vacations. He would meet these big cartel guys. He was, he was basically, an urban legend. I mean, he was a guy that hadn't got caught in 10 years moving millions of dollars of drugs. So well, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of kilos. So during the time that he was on the road, how many, how many kilos do you think he was responsible for moving? If you had to take a swag at it? Um, we estimated a thousand, you know, just conservatively as a, as the low end. And a thousand at a thousand dollars a kilo, right? He's, he's making good money at this point. Yeah, he, he, I'm sure he had made a couple million. And, and then on top of that, when he you, gets paid for the money yeah, going well, back, it, there's, right? There's actually a fee per million. Like if you haul three million in your car, there's a fee per million dollars. And I don't know what that is, but it's a lot. And he, he would also get a fee on how much money he was transporting. Wow. Wow. So. Now, you'd mentioned earlier that you had your ducks lined up that once he was arrested, there were going to be more enforcement actions. Yeah, we, we ended up uh, doing quite a few search warrants. We arrested some guys 
Um, and this arrest was on October 21st, 2011. Right. Yeah. Right. And then um, after that, it was, there was a series of, uh, we, had, we, had to, we had to go to grand jury, get arrest warrants for everybody, coordinate um, arrests of the Ogdens in, in uh, Oklahoma. And some of these guys are in different spots in the U.S. Um, but we ended up uh, doing some pretty, pretty good warrants in Michigan. Uh, one, of the, one of the top guys named David Gerardo, he lived in the suburbs, and we ended up searching his house, and we were in the basement, and we opened up the uh, the heating ducts in his basement, and we found $700,000 hidden in the in the ductwork of his basement. Uh, that's where so. I keep my money. <laughs> All <laughs> so $70 of it. <laughs> the, coolest, the, the coolest thing I've ever seen, um, we were in a warehouse, and it was, it was the warehouse they used before the one that was the big one they were using at the time. It was an older warehouse. We ended up doing a search warrant there and there was a, uh, a big bookshelf and a desk. And I don't know if you remember the old Scooby-Doo cartoons where you pull the book and the bookshelf opens up and there's a secret door behind it. There was literally something like that where you found a hidden lever and you pulled this bookshelf away from the wall. And then there was a room behind it. And it was, it was literally like something out of a, uh, a movie, and we, we, we moved this huge bookcase from the wall, and there was a door. We thought it was going to be like this huge treasure trove, and we opened the door, and, and there's a, a marijuana grow inside. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> now, how, did, how did you so, know it, that it, that was a secret door? Uh, Ramos said, hey, we, we, we use this other warehouse before, and we don't use it that much, and now we use the one in Wyandotte. So we ended up hitting both warehouses, and when we found this secret door, we thought, there was going to be millions of dollars hidden behind it. And it was just like, you know, kind of a bus like when Geraldo Rivera, Al Capone's vault, and they opened it up and there's nothing in there. Yeah, you know, it was, it was beyond disappointing. It was a room full of marijuana plants. Uh, oh, so we it. came all this way for anyway. Yeah. <laughs> How much poundage do you think was in that room? It, uh, it was, it was like a hundred marijuana plants. Oh, okay. oh man. So, so now it's nothing but a pain in the butt of how to deal with physical evidence, right? <laughs> oh, we, yeah, we're not even, um, in, we're not no. even really working marijuana. What he did is cases. he closed the bookcase and said, what marijuana plants? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, um, so, but when you've got Leo there too, one of the things that you said you advised him of his rights, um, and you bring him back. So describe the situation. Once you get him in there, does Leo talk? What does he do? Um, you know, he, he talks most of the time. He just kind of talks in riddles and he was just, I don't know if he was putting on an act. He, he, he did seem eccentric, but it was just, you'd have a conversation and you'd go in a circle and you wouldn't get anywhere. And you can only do that for so much before you just, you can't really do it anymore. And, um, he, he never ended up, um, cooperating. I mean, he, he held on to the story, which kind of bothered me where he said he was being threatened to do this. And he wasn't, he wasn't being threatened at all. Um, but he would, he would tell people, yeah, I was forced at gunpoint to do this. And we, we never heard anything like that on the wiretaps. Uh, when we, when we interviewed the cooperating upper level guys in the cartel, they were like, no, we never threatened them. Well, for 10 years, you've threatened what, an ongoing threat for 10 years and you're taking vacations in Mexico. No, it, bad uh, guys. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, it was a business relationship. Leo provided a product, and that was the end of the story. Um, at this level, these guys were they were pretty well established. Um, the, the 
the Detroit guys were all huge guys. They all had huge criminal histories and they were their own separate organizations. But these, these five guys were just massive drug dealers. And, but as far as when we, when we arrested people, there wasn't any violence or, or any, any homicides that came out of that. So, and Jeff, one of the things that anytime you stop this too, I mean, you're going through, people don't realize too, is that when you, Steve was talking earlier about, you got lots of evidence. There's lots of evidence. You got to search Leo's truck and it's one scrap of paper out of Leo's truck that actually led you to his handler. So walk us through that as you're searching this, as you're compiling everything, what's the little thing that uh, opens up the case a little more for you? Uh, Yeah, a lot of your your case is kind of connecting the dots and and, and that's done through... um, you know, going through phones and, and, and finding anything that's written on a ledger. And, you know, Leo had things written on pieces of paper that tied him to um, guys that were directing him. You know, there was a phone number of, you know, a cartel guy on a piece of paper. And that was stuff that kind of helped us when we got to uh, the part of the case where we were going to trial. You know, that's, that's just another piece of evidence you provide. Say, hey, Leo Sharp had you know, these three guys' names written on a piece of paper that we intercepted on the wiretap talking about them. And so th- those things, I mean, just the little things help out when you're when you're working a case is, you know, a name or a number that's written down or, or a ledger. But that, the, there was one piece of paper found in this truck that identified, was it Pedro? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, there was. It was, it was um, the number of Pedro Delgado Sanchez who was... Um, he was probably the one of the largest guys in the United States under under Chapo Guzman that was a domestic leader, and I believe his his hard line of his house was written on that piece of paper. And so that was he didn't live in Detroit though, did he? No, he was in Florida. No, of course, yeah. it's too cold in Detroit. <laughs> what kind of fool moves to Detroit to run dope? Oh, sorry, that's yeah. right. Hey, he, well, he had a legitimate business running also, though, didn't he? He, he he was in the restaurant business, and um, he he was really moving up the ranks as far as leadership in the cartel. I mean, he, if this wouldn't have happened, I I would put him in the top five guys under Chapo. I mean, he was, and he that's was, saying something for an organization that size, right? Yeah, right. I mean, he was. You know, your your all your performance is always where you're at, and he was. He was moving millions and millions of dollars out of Michigan. Now he, and you guys arrested him, charged him. Do you remember what he was? What his sentence was? Um, he ended up getting seven years out of a cooperation yeah. plea agreement. This is interesting too. We had a guy um, named Moses Lycona, and he was actually responsible for all of Indiana. And he actually ended up leaving Indiana to come to Michigan, just because he was getting a lot of heat from law enforcement there. And he was, he was a part of our case too. Let's talk about that because now we're bringing it to a close. People think this is the story's over, but it's not over. You arrest Leo Sharp. You still got another four months of work until February 26th, 2012, which is the last piece of your operation. You're talking about hitting 10 locations at once, you know? And uh, so tell us about how this thing finally wraps up. What's the final pieces, uh, Leo's scrap of paper, all the other stuff, your final big op that, puts a bow on this. Um, you're, you're putting together everything for your search warrants. Your grand jury's been done. You, so you have arrest warrants for 19 guys. And you really want to try to coordinate this so everyone's picked up at the same time. You know, if you grab a guy a week before on your indictment, it, it becomes unsealed. 
and your your sealed indictment has the name of all 19 guys. So everyone has to be picked up at the same time. And that's the hard part. So you're you're using DA offices in other cities, you're using the marshals, and you, you really have to say, hey guys, Tuesday morning, eight o'clock, we need to be hitting the doors at the same time. And then once you arrest someone, your your charging document, your indictment is unsealed, and that's where the cat's out of the bag. That's where you you know you can't everything's it's it's known that who's going to be arrested. So we're we're you know putting a lot of uh, people into uh, a takedown together. You know, just coordinating at the same time. Well, you got 17 of the 19, and one of them, uh, Armando Diaz Lucero, uh, at least the research I saw, that you think he might be dead. Is that is that still your understanding, is that Lucero's uh, dead? There are two brothers. Um, Armando died of a drug overdose uh, three years ago, and the, the last remaining fugitive is Jose Lucero Bustamante, and he has a fugitive warrant for his arrest, but he's he's in a part of Mexico where there's not a lot of oversight by law enforcement and it's just going to be real difficult. Um, I think with the climate now with Mexico, with NDEA, the problems we're having, I don't, I don't know if we could get them back through extradition. Are you able to say which part of Mexico it is? Um, I, I do. I just don't remember the exact, the exact area, but he, he's in a little, um, a village inside uh, like a mountain range that's like literally like it's like a full day's drive from like another city. I mean, he's, he's out in the boonies. Okay. And it's just, it's not feasible to have people go look for him. Yeah. Um, but obviously, but at least, uh, you, but you talked about, you thought you shut down dope with the 15 kilos, but what, what was the real impact of taking out the Sinaloa cartel organization in Detroit? Cause one of the ways you measure that, right, is by looking at the price of cocaine yeah. in the city. What was the impact you had? And quite frankly, too, how long did that impact last? <laughs> it, it, uh, kilos were about, uh, you know, 30 to 35,000 or, um, during that time frame, And then when that organization was taken down, it jumped up to about, it was about 10,000 more per kilogram, you know, 45,000. And it just, um, there was, you know, there was a year maybe at the most where that, where the prices were just, you know, higher because it was harder to get. I mean, there was, it was just a supply and demand. And, and obviously as they replace members of the organization and other guys fill the gaps, then the prices come down. So with Leo, so he goes to court. Did he go to trial, or what happened to him? Um, it it was a, it was uh, a circus, you know. I mean, it was just he'd come out of the courtroom and he'd yell into the camera and he'd throw tantrums in court, and it just it got to be a big media thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the only thing I found enjoyable is we were he was brought into court for the first time. Um, in front of Judge Nancy Edmonds, and she's a very no-nonsense uh, judge. And she asked him to stand up and, and asked him, Mr. Sharp, have you ever been arrested before? And, you know, he gives a long, dramatic pause. And he says, well, Your Honor, one time I was in Mexico and I was arrested. She goes, what were you arrested for? And he goes, he goes I was with a prostitute and we were, we were making a movie together. <laughs> <laughs> and the judge said, what? <laughs> 
just, just everyone looked at the floor and it was it was so awkward and you know obviously his, his family's in there and, you know, oh jeez but, but it, it was always something like that it was in the middle of quarters of show and you know he'd, he'd come outside and the media would run up and he would he would scream something into the camera that i'm going to kill myself as soon as i get to jail and so what happened was he found guilty or he pled guilty he pled guilty um there's there's federal um, prisons or camps for elderly prisoners, and he ended up in one of those. And then he was given an early release due to terminal cancer, passed away. And then um, I, th- I think he got full military burial honors. See, I, I got so I got to stop you right here because you and I talked about this before. I got a flag on the wall back here. My dad was a World War II vet. He was a Vietnam vet. Right. Um, uh, he served his country. We've all served our country. You know, uh, this is the part that really, uh, and this is where I take exception with the movie. And I want to talk about the movie too, because the way it was made, uh, what if any role you had with it. But look, let's let let's just make sure people understand. Leo Sharp ran dope for the most dangerous cartel, probably not only in North, if not the world, at least North America. Thousands of people have died under this cartel. The money he made was the blood money from the people who've been involved in this trafficking organization. And I take I take uh, I take umbrage at the fact is that this guy was given any kind of full military honors honors, and after betraying his country, the way that he did. I just I mean. I'm still outraged at that. And like I say, I take it personal because like all of us, we all have friends whose names are on the law enforcement wall. We've all had friends die in the line of duty. And to think that a corrupt cop, let's say somebody who was responsible for the death of other fellow officers would get full military, get a full police officer funeral. I mean, I, I can't see that happening. I, I don't see this happening. Uh, I mean, does that grate at you? Because as you can tell, it grates at me, right? Or was oh, I not obvious enough? Amen, brother. One of the things that bothered me is, um, and, this, and this was the same thing with Ogden, is they both received very lenient sentences. And a lot of it was due to their health, age, their health and their age. And Ogden had cancer as well. And at these, at these sentencing hearings, you know, these attorneys bring in a lot of stuff for leniency where they, they explain, hey, my client, it, he won't live very long. And please forgive the fact that he, you know, he brought hundreds of kilos into this district. And then, the, you know, sometimes the judge overlooks that. And, and, and a lot of people were pretty upset that Leo Sharp got such a lenient sentence. And not only that, was released out of prison before his sentence was completed. What was the sentence? I don't I think it was five years, three years, maybe. I think it was well, yeah, he years. went to, he pled guilty on October 8th, 2013. Um, and then October or in August, 2015, he was released from prison for compassionate release. He died on December 12th, 2016. So it took him another year and four months, five months after that. Um, yeah, it just, uh, you know, I mean, it's one of the things, what, what can you do? The folks at our level is that you make the cases, you take them to court, yeah. and there's yeah. only so much we can do. Right. But, but again, the nice thing about being a private citizen is I can take offense at the, the, not only the leniency, but the treatment. It's not like the guy had a parking violation. Right. You know? And it's it's a decision over 10 years. It's not like I did it one time yeah. and I really made a bad right. decision. It's like I continuously did it for a decade. 
And some people are going to listen to this and think we have no compassion whatsoever. What we have done is we've seen the misery that this type of conduct causes. And, right. you know, and you're not, it's not so much about the people that die. It's about the families that continue to live and the embarrassment, how they're taking down a family name, the innocents who are drug into this. There's a lot more to be considered here than us not being compassionate because I have no compassion. I'm with Morgan. I'm with Jeff. I have no compassion for drug dealers at all. Well, let's talk about the compassion of the people whose families were killed simply because they happened to be related to a business partner who might have done something wrong, but the families did nothing wrong and they got targeted. How about the nine Mormons in Mexico and the 13 police officers? I mean, we could go on and on. So let's, let's, we always want to end on a high note. I just, if I get off on this, man, I, I, I will just lose my shit. Let's get back to, let's talk about why you turned down the role and let Bradley Cooper take it in the movie. Um, How did this all come about? So it had to be kind of weird to go, wait a minute, you guys want to make a movie about this? So how did that come about? Uh, In 2014, we were, the DEA was approached by um, the New York Times, and there was a writer named Sam Dolnick, and and he went through um, the process of securing an interview regarding this case. And a lot of the the judicial part of it was done, so we we could talk about people's sentencing and their roles. And so he he flew into Detroit and then interviewed myself and Jeremy Fitch and, you know, just kind of went over like, hey, tell me about the case and, you know, how did things happen? And I, he, he did some other investigating outside of DEA where he went out to Leo Sharp's uh, farm and, and talked with him a bit. And I think he might have talked to some family members and traced his background in the military. And, and then he actually put together a big piece um, in the New York Times covering just an expose of the life of Leo, you know, you know how everything from his military up to the point of when he was arrested. Um, so that, that, that goes into publication and, uh, in 2014 and then imperative entertainment, I guess they're associated with Clint Eastwood's company. They pick up the story and, and buy the rights to make the movie. And then they put that into production and, you know, obviously cast um, Clint Eastwood and Bradley Cooper and Michael Pena as, as the lead characters. Is it true you turned down the role? They asked you to play yourself and you said no? <laughs> no, I no, I, I have no. Um, Did you even get to meet Bradley Cooper? I, I mean, come I, on, impress I, us with something. No, I, I, I sent a letter to, to Clint Eastwood saying, hey, um, can I get a, can I get an autograph or something? But I, ne- I never heard back, but I, I, I'm, I'm just happy that the movie was made. You know, well, not... let's talk about that. So Steve and I have come up with this patented method. We say it's patented in trademark. We haven't done it yet, but we're going to, and it's called the narcometer. <laughs> so on a scale of one to 10 kilos, one being it's not accurate at all. 10 being it's just spot on. Couldn't have done it any better. <laughs> And we're not talking about how good the movie was. We're just saying in terms of accuracy, okay. give us Jeff, it's Jeff Moore's rating on the narcometer. Uh, was it totally accurate? Was it a one or was I, was it somewhere in between? I, out of one to ten, I, maybe a three or a four. Well, gee, uh, Steve, this is wow. <laughs> fits right in with narcos. <laughs> I, I, I remember watching the movie and um, he's 90 years old and in the, in the movie he has two threesomes with women. And I'm like, where is this coming You're talking from? about Leo Sharp, not Jeff Moore, the DEA agent. <laughs> Leo Sharp, the 90-year-old guy, has 
two threesomes in the movie. And I'm like, what? I'm like, where is this coming from? This guy, he's 90 years old, and I, I don't know. It, the movie was, I, I enjoyed it. Um, it I, wish, I wish they had showed more of his life, you know, how, you know, how he's in the military and just a little bit more of him than he, he it kind of seemed like he was just accidentally thrown into this. And well, it seemed like he was just a day lily, you know, guy too. It's just like yeah. n- none of that yeah. other stuff and no 10 year history with the cartels running marijuana and then cocaine. Yeah. And he was just they tried to make him look kind of like a Robin hood where he was, you know, paying for different things. And, yeah. but one question was the story about his daughter. Is that true at all? Um, I know he was, um, kind of estranged for some, from some members of his family. And I remember being in the court and, and, and some of them are actually there with him. I, I don't, he may have been briefly separated from his wife towards the end of his mm-hmm. life, but I don't, I don't know much about his daughter or if they were talking when he was arrested. I know that I think she was there uh, in court at his sentencing and stuff. Yeah, I th- it might have thrown that in to get a humanitarian side to him. And he also showed that his wife passed away from cancer. I don't think that's true, is it? No, I I had heard that his family, too, was not happy with the movie and the, and the portrayal. And it, it, I think it was an embarrassment to their family. And they, yeah. they, weren't, they weren't entertained by it at all. Yeah. It's called liter- literary licensing. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Well, Steve, you learned that too. We talked about this with Narcos because we said, and you tell what, tell him what you tell audiences around the world when people ask you about how accurate Narcos is. About a third of it's true. The second third is kind of true. Those events <laughs> happen, but they've been changed. And that last third is just straight out make believe Hollywood. Oh, you know, and that, but that's it's, part. It's, that's part of your contract. It has says right in your contract. Yeah. We uh, reserve the right to employ literary licensing as we see fit, and you just because it's your life story, you have no input. The one thing that I have to say, though, the one thing they really got true was the chronology. That's pretty accurate. Hey, how happy were you with how Bradley Cooper played you in the movie in terms of <laughs> authenticity? I mean, you're you're more uh, buff than him. You can obviously no, run two miles. Uh, I don't no, know if he I, could run two miles. I, I, I'm glad I didn't pick, like, Dwight Schrute from The Office to play me or something. <laughs> <laughs> the Schrute beat farm. It's true. I, 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 um, or Pee Wee Herman, somebody yeah, like that. Yeah, no, I... I I love all those actors, and I thought the movie was was good. It's just the story was a little uh, goofy in some spots. You know, and that's the problem with cops. My wife does the same. I'll be sitting here watching some movie on TV, and it irritates the biggest biggest mistake they make on these cop movies or shows is when you've got a semi-automatic, the clips are on the wrong side of the belt. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it just and the same thing with the revolver, or they're or they're behind your back. What the hell am I going to be doing? Dropping a clip, reaching behind my back somewhere for a spare magazine to put back in there? You know, that's yeah. the problem. Well, critique it too much. And and watching the movie, I think I think uh, Bradley Cooper and Michael Pena did a very good job portraying DEA. They did. They did. And the fact that the the enthusiasm yeah. for the investigation, the the focus, you know, because I mean, I think it was Bradley Cooper actually comes across as a little bit of an asshole at points, but it's because he's so focused on that mission, and that's what it takes. I mean, you you talked about how busy you were. It's twenty four seven for an extended period of time. You're trying to run yeah. multiple venues around the United States, sometimes other parts of the world. So I thought they captured that pretty well. Yeah, it, it, I did. I did enjoy the the DEA part of it and the work ethic that they were putting in on the street trying to catch these guys. 
All right. So tell the truth now, Jeff. <laughs> Years later, what kind of shit do you get from people when they see they see you and they go, "Oh, you, you know, you're you're the guy in the movie. You're this, you're that." Do you catch any crap from your fellow DEA agents for being a Hollywood movie star now? Um, <laughs> Come on, now, give a, it up. There's a few sideways comments about you know how long am I gonna milk this 15 minutes of fame and stuff like that. <laughs> All right. Well, tell us, tell the global audience, our two listeners we have, how long are you going to milk this? Uh, like my bosses are like, when are you going to do another big case? Or are you just going to retire after this one? And yeah, what have you done for me today? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and well, your response hey, is, when are you going to do a big case? You know? yeah, I'm like, I don't know if I can create another case like this one, but I'll, I'll definitely look, look for them. If it, if it helps you deal with it any better, Javier and I are into our sixth year of riding this thing on Escobar. So <laughs> you got a ways to go, brother. <laughs> and yeah, we're still yeah. He's still milking it, man. He's got a he has got a three legged stool and four milk pails at his home. He milks this thing every day. We work on this, right? So uh, that's, that's true. Well, let's bring this to a close because, first okay. of all, this has been fun. But, but really, from a standpoint of view, what's the biggest message you want people to take away from? Not, and to me, let me ask you a two-part question: What's the biggest thing people should not take away from this movie when they see the mule? You just have to kind of look at the big picture, and I, I, under, I understand everyone wants to focus on Leo Sharp and you know his life and and, and some of the problems he had with his family. But it's like you guys are saying that. You know, a thousand kilos of coke affects, you know, lots of families. You know, there's there's families that have lost, you know, kids, uh, relatives to drug addiction. And when I, I, I spoke with Pedro Delgado and he told me, he goes, Jeff, being a drug dealer in Michigan is um, it's not that bad. You know, you don't you don't make as much money as being in, in Mexico. But the downside of being in Mexico is you have a you know, you have a bigger chance of being killed. And. He was just telling me how bad it was in Mexico that, you know, when when th when a load would get taken off, there'd always be someone that'd have to answer for it with their life. And um, and there's a, there's a lot of couriers um, that work out of fear. Like Leo Sharp works out of obviously uh, monetary payment, but there's people that get sent to the United States, and the cartel says, "Hey, you're going to drive dope." for us for X amount of time, or we're going to kill your family. And there's a lot of people that are forced into this out of threat to their family. And um, so it, the, just the scope of it goes past just this, the small story that was told in the, in, in the movie. And, and a lot of people, like you're saying, it, it affects so many people, you know, a lot of people lose their lives and families are destroyed. I mean, that's, that's what drugs do. You know, and just looking at the the numbers, the uh, the amount of cocaine that he supposedly transported, if he did it for ten years, I think we're all safe in saying that it was a hell of a lot more than a thousand kilos. You know, yeah. that, and like you said, that was a conservative estimate. Yeah, that's just giving a bottom number. That I mean, who knows who knows how much he brought here? Well, according to the ledgers, the cartels' ledgers that the government obtained, he delivered two hundred forty six kilos in February of twenty ten, two hundred and fifty in March, two hundred and fifty kilos the next month, two hundred kilos the next, and another two hundred the next. I mean, this guy was transporting thousands of kilos a year, you know, yeah. or over those years, right? Yep. Or he wouldn't have he wouldn't have uh, attained that uh, the hero type status within his own organization. They wouldn't have wined and dined him just because they felt sorry for him because he's an old man. He was bringing them millions and millions and millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was this literally is... the best mule they've ever had. 
Yeah. And you got him. You got him. You and Bradley Cooper. You got him. Well, Bradley Cooper. Other, myself and a few other guys got him. So, but thank you. Okay. Bradley Cooper wants to be you, Jeff. Not the That's other right. Way That's right. That's how you know when you made the big screen. All right. Okay. That's right. Exactly. Well, hey, look, Jeff. Well, first of all, I can tell you, being a former cop, uh, you know, it got, it, somebody who'd worked with DEA on task forces before and stuff. I mean, as you know it, too, at our level, the guys who worked the roads, who worked the streets, who did the cases, we all love this kind of stuff. We do it because it's the right thing to do. Nobody does it for the headlines or the glory politics are outside of our realm and stuff. And so, I mean, I just know that I, I, I appreciate the fact that sometimes feds get a bad rap, especially the FBI, but deservedly so according to Steve, you know, they, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, really, but, but really it's, it's, it's that cooperation between federal tribal state and local. This is what makes this thing work. It's not, you know, it's not what people think it is. And really, quite frankly, with the work that you're doing and then the people you're doing it with, uh, this is what makes your community safer. This is what makes things best. So for that, sir, yes, thank you, you the official thank you. Game of Crimes salute, <laughs> sir. Thank and you what he's so talking much. about, what he's talking about there, Jeff, with the multi-agency cooperation, nobody does it better than DEA. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, brother. Thank you for being thank, on the show. Thank, thank you so much for having me, guys. Yeah, well, we're going to bring this to an end. So you folks, stay tuned. We're going to, we'll obviously put the link to the movie in here and uh, uh, to the uh, Jeff's life story, Prayed by Bradley Cooper. That's the next sequel coming out to The Mule. <laughs> and it's called The Stud. And so we'll, we'll, we'll tell you about this story when it comes out. But hey, you guys, thanks for being on. We are bringing it to a close. You guys stay tuned. We got more great stuff coming up in the next episode. Man, what a great episode. And guess what? We told you. We introduced the Narcometer, our way of rating movies on 1 to 10 kilos. So you're going to hear this come up a little bit more. We actually may have uh, some special things to where we go through and we take a look at uh, the DEA Narcos series on Netflix, DEA, you know, Narcos Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, some other movies. And we have some other guests coming up whose topics were subject to movies that we're going to subject to the Narcometer. So I thought that was pretty cool, Steve. It was. Jeff's such a nice guy, you know, and uh, we've continued to talk after the interview and, and gotten to be friends. We had him send us some pictures, and uh, he's even uh, doing some work on the side for himself. So it's uh, – it, <laughs> I, I would have never dreamt this was a real DEA case. I thought this was something Hollywood made up. I was a little surprised that Clint played that, Clint Eastwood, but uh, it's Leo Sharp, man, oldest drug trafficker. For the Sinaloa cartel, man. <laughs> <laughs> El Chapo, man, and we're going to, we got something about El Chapo coming up, uh, episode eight. We're going to actually have the real DEA agents who captured him the second time. Oh, yeah. And yeah, boy, <laughs> those are some hellacious stories. Again, all I got to tell you, when you rent a car, get the extra insurance if you're ever around DEA. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially <laughs> in Mexico. All right. Hey, and guess what, guys? Next episode. Good friend of mine, Mike Neal, you're going to hear about, again, this this one is where it's going to, I guarantee you, it will give you chills. This is called the West Memphis Shootout. I had the opportunity and I had the uh, actual privilege to award Mike the International Police Officer of the Year on stage at a uh, police chief's conference, where actually on stage joined me was uh, Janet Napolitano. She was then Secretary of DHS. This guy won the Presidential uh, Medal of Honor, basically, for police work. This is a hell of a story. It involves the shooting death of two West 
Memphis police officers. One of them was the son of the chief, and the chief rolled up on the scene and found him by two sovereign citizens. So the shootout, the stuff, it, I guarantee you, it's just going to, I, I like you, Murph, I just get chills when I listen to this stuff. So um, Absolutely. This is one you don't want to miss, ladies and gentlemen. If you heard the, the interview with Kevin Stevens last week, this is uh, taking it to the next level. I mean, it's just outrageous what took place, but you're going to find out how a professional law enforcement Take, officer takes care of business, doesn't shy away, doesn't run away, stands up and does his yeah, even job. A, even even though he he already two cops have been killed, another one's been shot, and he himself could have been shot and killed. You just got to get in the fight. You got to do what's right. So we're going to get into that. But hey, guys, thanks for joining us on this episode. Remember, go to Apple Podcasts, hit that five stars. It's magic. We don't know how it works. It's Magic Kingdom. It's Disney. It's David Copperfield all rolled into one. But it really makes things work. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We'll be constantly updating. Again, uh, we'll launch Patreon August 1st. We'll have some bonus content we'll talk about. Follow us on social media, Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, Game of Crimes Podcast on Instagram. And if you do PayPal, just use our Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you more exciting content. So, Murph, I think we've pretty much covered things. This was a great episode. Are you ready for the next one? We are. I'm excited and just want to say thanks, everybody. When you get a chance, support our advertisers. That's how we keep coming back to you. Absolutely. All right, folks. Till next week, let's get ready to play the biggest game of all, the Game of Crimes. 